Hashem Hashem Nase Venatsliach Shil Torah. Good to be here back in Aventura, Baruch Hashem. We are um, up to Shior number 98, I believe, in the Perkei Avot series. Uh, 97, 98. Um, and this is actually part two of the, uh, the same Mishnah we went over last Wednesday. Last Wednesday, which is Mishnah in Avot 5-9, which we'll go over. That starts with uh, seven traits characterize an uncultivated person, a golem, and seven, a chacham, a learned person. Uh, Baruch Hashem, we also have Parashat uh, Vayekel. We have two Parashot this, excuse me, this week. Parashat Pekudeh, Parashat Vayekel. We'll try to go over some of them. Baruch uh, Hashem, the uh, poem was good. Lots of fun. Cute seeing little kids in their costumes. You know, my uh, Rav one time told me a joke. He says, uh, the uh, poem is the uh, holiday where uh, the uh, Goim dressed like Jews and the Jews dressed like Goim. Um, but uh, anyway, Bo Hashem, we have a uh, lot to do. Trip to New York is coming up. Trip to California is coming up. So lots of, uh, lots of things to do beforehand. But uh, if anybody has any questions, ask away. A lot of you ask me questions usually after this year, try to ask them during this year or after this year so it's uh, other people can benefit from your questions. Because uh, a lot of the questions are usually the same thing. People you typically have the same questions. Um, a lot of chidushim ba'u Hashem, a lot of interesting things. And uh, we'll get started. So the shiur will be for a refuah um, to uh, Levana Bat Sarah, Ovadia Ben Levana, Sarah Bat uh, Levana, uh, David Ben Nesriya, Doris Bat Jora, um, uh, Rav Ephraim Ben uh, Shulamit. Um, speak up. Baruch Ben Rivka. Elisheva, Chaya Bat Bat Sarah. חנה בת מרים. קדוש ברוך הוא יברך אתכם and give everybody רפואה שלמה, רפואת הנפש, רפואת הגוף. We also started a תהילים uh, group last week. Uh, there was a couple of uh, a couple of big things to do on Purim. Really a couple of big things to do every day. Uh, and uh, we learned from our rabbis. We learned from our rabbis different things, and uh, if you pray enough to Hashem, Hashem will give you an opportunity to fulfill these big mitzvot that uh, are uh, have specific timing. Obviously, every mitzvah you can do, certain mitzvot that are particular to a certain day of the week, like Shabbat, certain mitzvot that are particular to a specific time of the year, like Pesach or Purim, and there's certain mitzvot that are particular to a specific time, specific time in your life, specific time of the year, and so on. And uh, the big mitzvah that uh, we have in Purim is the same mitzvah we have for Pesach. 
In Purim, we call it to remove Amalek, to kill Amalek. In Pesach, we call it to remove Chametz. Chametz. Now, we all know that no one really knows who Amalek is today. Most recently, we know that it was Nazi Germany, Machshimam Vizicham. But the Germans today, for the most part, don't have much of a relation to the Germans of uh, 70 years ago, at least not for the most part. There's probably more Nazis in America than there are in, uh, in Germany. Um, but still, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're Amalek, it just means that they're stupid. So why do we have this mitzvah that we repeat year after year, destroy Amalek, destroy Amalek, destroy Amalek? We don't know who he is. How can I fulfill this mitzvah? Now everybody thinks that you fulfill the mitzvah by going to shul and hearing parashat zachor, hearing the verse, which is a mitzvah, mitzvah deoraita. They think that's the biggest point. So they come, they bring the kids, they bring the cats, the dogs, the neighbors, the do, the do. Everybody comes to the shul. No one can hear anything because there's so much noise. People don't know that it's not a mitzvah to bring your kid to shul if the kid doesn't shut up. It's not a mitzvah. It's actually avera. It's a sin. Why? Because now no one else can hear the chazan. No one else can hear the bal koreh because your son can't be quiet. It's either because he, he was never uh, disciplined or because he's just too little to be disciplined. If he's before six years old, you can't discipline him really. Why? He doesn't really understand. The Ben Ishchai, Shutot Again Alenu, said that until age six, your child, no matter how cute he is, is like a monkey. Meaning, you have to train them. You have to train them how to do certain things. You can't really discipline them. You can train them, you can't discipline them. So, if your kid is not trained to be quiet at shul because he's under six years old because you can't discipline him it's under six you can't bring him it's not a mitzvah to bring him why is not a mitzvah because then everybody else has to suffer because your kid can't be quiet so then you're gonna say yeah but how is he gonna learn he learns at home he doesn't learn on somebody else's cheshbon you don't learn by making other people suffer especially since in reality most of these parents that are bringing their kids to shul what are they bringing them to? They eat lunch. They give them bamba, beastly, candy, this, that, that, that. All they do with the rappers all day and they're screaming and yelling. No one learns anything. But everybody else has to suffer. Everybody else has to suffer with the beastly and the bamba and the potato chips. He brought the whole kitchen. Because you want him to be quiet. But in reality, not only is he making noise with the rappers, he's also making noise with his mouth too. And then they yell and they scream and they run. And, it, and this is in almost every shul. So if your kid is under six years old, unless you have trained him extremely well to the point where he could sit quietly throughout the entire tefillah, throughout the entire reading from the Torah, which is very difficult for a five-year-old kid. It's very difficult for 50-year-old kids. Imagine for a five-year-old. You can't bring him. It's not a mitzvah. You're causing other people to miss the reading. 
and if the reading is Megillat Estel, you miss one word, you didn't fulfill the mitzvah. If it's Parashat Zachor, you miss one word, you didn't get the mitzvah. So other people, Hashem are missing mitzvot deoraita, biblical mitzvah, because you want to train your kid, train him at home. Don't do anyone any favors. Now, if he's above six, that means that by now, you're able to discipline him. If you haven't disciplined him yet, to the point where he can't sit there, he's 8, 9, 10 years old, 11 years old, 12 years old, and he still doesn't know that he needs to be quiet in shul, sometimes because his father is not quiet, so he says, oh, I'm doing like Abba. Abba is not quiet, I'm not quiet. Why should I be quiet if Abba's not quiet? Abba's talking, I'm talking. But, what's the problem? Fulfilling my, uh, my, my responsibility of uh, respecting my father. I'm doing the same thing as him, no? He wears kippah, I wear kippah. He goes to shul, I go to shul. He talks in the middle of tefillah. I will talk at tefillah. What's the problem? I'll talk even more than him. Show him a big tzaddik. What's the problem? Sometimes because the father doesn't know how to be quiet. Sometimes the rabbi doesn't know how to be quiet. Sometimes the rabbi is the biggest talker in shul. Place like that, run away. Place like that, it's not a mitzvah to go to a place like that. If the rabbi is the biggest talker in shul, there's no mitzvah of going to that shul. Why? There's no chance in the world it's ever going to change. Change starts from the top. If the top is rotten, it's only downhill from there. So sometimes because the father, sometimes just because he just didn't get disciplined yet, and he doesn't know yet, and it's hard for him, and so on and so forth. Again, the same responsibility goes on the parents to not bring their ch children to shul. Why? It's not my fault that you did not discipline your kid. I came to shul to pray. I came to shul to listen to the chazan, not to listen to your kids. And yes, some people are going to want to tear my head off and say, oh, it's so insensitive. It's so, call it whatever you want. My responsibility is to God, not to your six-year-old kid or ten-year-old kid who doesn't want to be quiet. And this is why I have never brought my kids to, 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 to shul. The first time I ever brought my kids was on Purim, on the second reading where there's like six people. Why? Nobody else is there. So I brought one of my babies because he's Baruch Hashem. It's fine. Just to see, just to see how, what happens. Hashem, we survived. Other than that, no one's ever seen my children. In general, I don't bring my kids out because there's no reason to. What are they going to go see? People half naked in the streets. What are they going to go see? If there's a need, we take them. But in reality, most things, there's no need. To shul, definitely no need. For why? What are you going to bring a three, four-year-old to shul for? What are they going to do there? What are they going to do there? To play, play at home, play in a, in a kindergarten, play in a, in a preschool, in a playground. Shul is not a place to play. The fact that many people have turned into a playground and practically every big shul has a playground is ridiculous. But that's such as life. This is how the generations continue to fall. It's time someone says something. Apparently, I have to be the one. So, first and foremost, we have to understand that shul is not a playground it's not a playground it's a place to pray and to fulfill mitzvot now the big mitzvah we had on purim was to get rid of amalek how are we going to get rid of amalek first of all if we can't even hear we have to do it because the kids are screaming 
So let's say we solve that problem next year. How we get rid of Amalek? We don't know who he is still. How we get rid of Amalek? The reality is, Abutai, we talked about, we had a whole lecture about it last week. Amalek is inside us. It's the Amalek that's inside us that we have to get rid of. Amalek has the same gematria, same numerical value as safik. Safik means doubt. You have to remove all the doubts that you have. Any doubt you have about the Torah. You have questions, get answers. Rabbi doesn't know, find another rabbi. Doesn't mean that your rabbi is not good just because he doesn't know every single answer in the world. He's not Moshe Rabbeinu. Just find a rabbi that knows and has sources. Your rabbi may be an expert in halachot for Shabbat. You have questions about Torah and science. Find a rabbi that's an expert in Torah and science. Your rabbi may be an expert in Torah and science. You want halachot uh, Shabbat. Find a rabbi that knows halachot uh, Shabbat. In reality, most rabbis know halachot Shabbat. If not, you're not a rabbi. But anyway, the point is, Abutai, is that the safek inside us is what's killing us. That's what's causing us to sin every single day. The fact that we have the audacity to sin every single day is only because we have a safik. It's only because we still have a doubt of whether God's real, whether He really said it, whether He really meant it when He said it, whether the Chachamim translated it the right way and maybe it's something else. We have a lot of safik. We have a lot of doubts. Amalek is doubts. Your responsibility on Purim is to remove your doubts. The other Amalek is not just the current doubts. It's the doubts you used to have. Meaning your previous life, before you did tshuva. Some people, they convert or they do tshuva, which in my eyes is the same thing. To convert, do tshuva, you still have to do the same thing. You have to become a Jew. And... They still want to hold on to their previous life. Still want to hold on to their previous friends, their previous customs, their previous likes. They used to like playing basketball every day, so they want to play basketball every day just with a keep on. They used to like to have a couple of beers with the guys, so they still want to have a couple of beers with the guys as long as the beer is kosher. They used to... Do all types of things they like. So once they do tshuva, they want to continue doing these things. Some people like to celebrate certain holidays. Okay, so I'm not going to have this Christmas tree in my house. I'll have it in my friend's house. It's just a tree. What's the big deal? So all of these things are called Amalek. And the mitzvah of Purim is to get rid of that Amalek. All of those horrible things that you did in your past before you realized how bad they are, it's time to stop. Now, Obviously, it's time to stop them every day. That's tshuva. But there's a special merit if you do this on Purim or at this time of the year. Now for anyone who didn't know until you heard it right now in the shiur, good. Why is it good? Pesach has the same mitzvah. It's called chametz. Chametz is not just the bread that's in your house. Chametz is the chametz inside you. It's the stuff that's no good. It's no longer welcome. And it's a mitzvah to get rid of all those things and start doing tshuva. Because no one knows how long they're going to be here. No one knows if they're going to be here to see Mashiach or they're going to see God first. Because they're calling them upstairs early. No one knows. Point is, you have to do tshuva before you die. So Chazal asks, so when is that day? 
No one knows. So when should we do tshuva? Every day. Every day do tshuva. So getting rid of the Amalek, getting rid of Chametz is the same thing, Abutai. It's time for us to start taking care of those things. Now how do you know that you're actually doing tshuva? How do you know? Why? Because you have a keep on? You're wearing uh, different clothes, that means you did tshuva? I saw I, there's this uh, certain particular person, this woman, Honestly, I think she's related to Haman. In my opinion, she's related to Haman. She's been torturing us for the last uh, few months. And I think she's related to Haman, but she wears a kisurosh like you think she just came from Mount Sinai. So kisurosh is not necessarily... Uh, even the, the Muslim terrorist wears kisurosh. Kippa? Plenty of people wear kippa while they do a lot of bad things. Exterior doesn't mean that much. Obviously, the exterior needs to fit the interior. But the point is, how do you know if you're doing tshuva? One sign, one sign, Rabotai, is when you get to the point where you're disgusted with the sins you've made in the past. To such a point that it's encouraging you to stop. Now, just being disgusted and upset about your past, that could simply be just Yetzirah. Why? He wants you to say, oh, you're such a sinner. You did this. You did this. Ah, there's no hope for you. You lose hope and you uh, decide to be a rasha for the rest of your life. That's Yetzirah. But Yetzirah Tov that wants you to do tshuva, the good inclination, also wants to remind you. You know all those things you used to do? You used to see this. You used to watch this. You used to do, 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 do all those things you used to do. It's no good. Okay, that's why you did tshuva. Okay. Next year. By the way, remember those things? Yeah, I did you up for them. No, no, not really. Why? I'm supposed to be sorry. Well, but I stopped. Okay, stopped is one thing. You have to be sorry for them too. How can I be sorry? I had a lot of fun with that girl, with that guy, with the this. How can I? Oh, so you didn't do tshuva yet. If you're still talking about your life before you did tshuva, oh, remember when we were with that girl and with the guy and went to here and went to there and went to money and went to this and I took that guy and I did that. You remember all that stuff? Oh, you're still celebrating it? You haven't begun tshuva. All you did is change clothing. All you did is change clothing and you became a robot to keep Shabbat. That's it. Tshuva Rabotai is fixing the Amalek, the Chametz, inside. That's tshuva. Takes time. Takes time. Takes effort. It's not automatic. It's not like Shabbat where, you know what? If you sleep all day for 25 hours straight, you kept Shabbat technically. It's not Onik Shabbat, but at least you didn't violate it. It's not something that just happens automatically. You have to actually work here. You have to work on your Midot. We have to work on our Midot. So this is series is one that's Baruch Hashem helping me at least work on my Midot. And some people are telling me that it's also helping them drastically. One guy, Baruch Hashem, Said he was religious. He just sent me an email recently. Says, you know, I've been religious from birth. Born with a keep on. Maybe pay us too. And religious, this, that, school, yeshiva, related to rabbis, the whole, the whole nine. And I don't know exactly how old he is, but he's not young. 
He's not 90, but he's not young. He says, until now, until I started watching Yeshurim, I did not realize how significant Yirat Shamaim really is. And then actually, you know what? I wanted to double check. I wanted to double check. Because there you say some things, or Mizrahi says some things. Maybe it's just your opinion. So I looked it up. And he said, I always thought of the Chafetz Chaim as like this, you know, fluffy, nice old man. And I'm sure he was a nice old man. But you know what I found when I actually read the book? I read what the Chafetz Chaim actually said. Much worse than you. I'm the nice, fluffy guy next to the Chafetz Chaim. Everybody likes to talk about uh, oh, it's not nice to say bad things. Oh, you know how much Chafetz Chaim talked about Genom. You know how much Chafetz Chaim talked about Yirat Shamaim. And you know what the biggest kept secret in Judaism today is? Every single major, every single major Rav that ever existed from the beginning of time until just this past generation or two. Anyone that was of any significance spent an enormous amount of their writing and their time discussing Yirat Shemayim. Why? It's more than half the Torah. Which means that only now in this Dor Shafel, this, this, this horrific generation that we're in and we're part of, is Yirat Shemayim gone to such a point that thinking that some people consider Yirat Shemaim something that you shouldn't even bother with. One Rav I heard recently said, anyone that's scared of God is a fool. I said, anyone that continues to listen to you is a fool. But this is, this is the world we live in. Unless you start looking into it yourself, and you're depending on speeches, whether it's my speech or somebody else's, you're never going to get rid of that suffix. You're never going to get rid of that doubt. Because even if you read, if you watch all my lectures, unless you double-check everything I say, or at least a bunch of them to the point where you know whatever he says, I've already verified enough that I know by now it's, already, it's good. If you don't start taking notice of the things I mentioned, I mentioned to you Gmarot, uh, this and all these different books. You don't start checking some of these things. You're always going to have a doubt. Why? The, the minute there's a problem in your life, the minute some rabbi with a longer beard than mine shows up to your life, says, ah, you know, he's machmir, he's this, he's that. Immediately, I go from here to, 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 to you've forgotten. You watched Shurim for a year and a half. What happened? Oh, him? Yeah, yeah, I think I know who he is. Yeah, I think. Uh, on? Yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, he's new. He's new. What do you mean? You were uh, glued to me for a year and a half watching Shulim. What happened? No, nah, I heard from some rabbi that's much older than him. He said that's not. Yerat Shemaim is not like what he says. He's, he's machmir. He's, uh, he's a fanatic. He's like uh, one of these Muslims. Muslim terrorists trying to take care of the world. In Jewish uniform. Unless you start double checking what I say, Rabotai, you will never get rid of that safik. And right now you're all saying, no, I don't have safik. I've already been coming for a year, two years. I have no safik. You have safik. Well, how do I know? I used to be you. I used to go to lectures too. 
until I started double checking what the rabbis were saying I had suffix I had a doubt why maybe he's just he's interpreting it that way maybe just that one rabbi said it that he's mentioning but all the other ones are saying something else maybe he just chose the one really strict opinion because he's strict you have to double check and until you start double checking Abutai, we're not going to get rid of that Amalek that's inside us. We're not going to fulfill that mitzvah of tshuva. So, people ask the same questions over and over again online, and I try to do my best to respond to all of them, but Baruch Hashem, there's much more than I can handle. But the reality is that if people would simply watch the shurim, not just the clips, the five-minute clips, the ten-minute clips, watch the full shiur, watch the full two, three hours, every week watch at least one full shiur, I promise you you'll get answers to all your questions. Why? Because there's an enormous amount of material in every lecture. It's an enormous amount of material to every lecture. If you're not writing down notes in every lecture, you're wasting your time. You're not going to remember it. I don't remember it, then I'm telling you. But to explain this so people understand the significance of Torah that's out there, we're not even touching 1% of 1% of 1% of 1% of it. Now, I'll explain this so people understand. Because people say, oh yeah, where is this written? Oh, it's now, maybe I understand what we're talking about. Now, we talk about Gemara. When I say Gemara, Masechet such and such, Masechet Sota, Masechet Shabbat, Masechet... These are tractates of the Gemara. Gemara is the foundation of our oral Torah. It's not the only part of the oral Torah, but it's it's the foundation. It's the most significant. Now, in simple words, this is one book of Gemara. This is one. This is one of four books of the tractate of Shabbat. One of them. So, for example, Shabbat, Masechet Shabbat, the tractate of Shabbat, in the translation from art scroll has four of these books now the entire Talmud the entire Gemara Talmud Gemara is in essence synonymous it's the same thing has 73 of these books 73 of these books which are 36 Masechets 36 tractates but are 73 books okay 73 of these books each one of these books is somewhere in the neighborhood I would say Probably six, seven hundred pages. Okay? They're very, very thin pages. Now, when I say the Gemara says, let's say, I don't know, I just picked one over here. Uh, okay. Amar Ula. Aluva kala mezanam betochupata. Ula said, How shameless is a bride who's unfaithful while still in her bridal chamber? A, a bride. That's unfaithful to her groom while they're under the chuppah. She's looking at her as his best friend. What is this synonymous to? What is he trying to talk about? The rest of the Gemara, I'll save you the time. This was Hashem Echem, Am Yisrael. Am Yisrael and Mount Sinai. Moshe Rabbeinu goes up to Shemaim to get the Torah. What do we do? We go, We build a golden calf. We're under the chuppah in Mount Sinai and we're cheating on Hashem already. It's no different than us, by the way. 
We say Shema Yisrael every day. We say Baruch Hashem every day. We say Bezrat Hashem every day. We say I love you Hashem every day. But when it comes to a difficult mitzvah, ah, Hashem, you're exempt. You're too much a little bit. What do you mean? You just said Baruch Hashem, no? You just said Bezrat Hashem, no? What happened? What happened to Hashem? No, Hashem, we have a line. So this now. Point I'm trying to say is that this is one line. One line in one page. It's not the whole Gemara. It's not the whole page. This is one single line. This is one sentence. What I just said. This whole teaching of, I don't know, two minutes was one line. It's, it's, not, it's one sentence. So if one sentence has that much teaching, which we can teach about this for five hours, just this one line, imagine what the rest of the book has. If the one line has that much teaching, imagine what the rest of the book has. Imagine what the rest of the Gemara has. And this is just the Gemara. Then you have the Zohar, you have Shuchan Aruch, you have Midrashi, Midrash Rabba, Midrash Ma'am Loez, uh, a lot of things, Yalkut Shimoni, and so on and so forth. The Torah, Rabotai Karim, is endless. Endless. Almost endless like the heat we have today with no air conditioner. You guys are trying to melt me. Almost like that. Almost. So, do anybody has some mercy, bring me a napkin. Please. One person has One person has mercy on me. The rest of you guys are still upset at me. So, thank you. So what is this? Talk about kaparat avonot? You guys are trying to melt me today? So anyway, we talk about the oral Torah, talk about Gemara, Masechet such and such, tractate of such and such, we're talking about one sentence in the Gemara. We're not talking about the entire Gemara. It's one sentence, one point. That point can be embellished drastically, uh, expanded upon. It's okay, it's okay. Thank you. School It can be expanded upon. There could be a whole sure made on just one single word. Forget about the whole sentence. And this is just the Gemara. Then you have the five books of Moses. Five books of Moses, you can learn one sentence in the five books of Moses, one sentence for the rest of your life. Even if you lived a million years, you lived a million years, you could spend learning one verse and still not be finished. You think I'm exaggerating? You don't know what Torah is yet. One verse, any verse you want. You pick any verse in the entire Torah, long verse, short verse, you could learn it for a million years. It's still not enough. One verse, I'm not talking about the entire Torah. One verse. One verse. It's five books of Moses. Then you have 19 other books in the Tanakh, comprised of Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, all the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zachariah, and so on. It's 19 other books. Each one of the writings in the Tanakh is divinely inspired. It's not just some people that were smart decide to write some stuff down, decide to write their journal. You can learn an endless amount of teaching from every one of these verses. You can apply it in endless amount of ways. The Mishnayot, which is the first part of our oral Torah, which is what we're doing now in this Pirkei Avot. This is one of the Mishnayot. It's fine, it's perfect, it's perfect. It's fine. This is one of the Mishnayot that talks specifically about Musar, about character development. 
they took these different Mishnayot from different parts, these different things from the sages from different parts, and they called it Avot, they called it the teachings of our fathers. As you can see, the sentences themselves are relatively short. Sometimes it's one sentence, sometimes two sentences. If it's long, three sentences. But we have a three-hour shiur about it. And sometimes it's only part one. Shabbat, I think we had the, the one we did the last one. We had five shiurim about it. So one mishnah. In reality, you got 5,000 shiurim on that one mishnah. Or any mishnah. 5,000 shiurim and still not be finished. Still not be finished. Torah is endless. Now I, all because of Hashem, all because Hashem, Baruch Hashem, gives me the knowledge, try my best to provide you with sources. So it never ever appears in your mind. You never have a thought like this. Like it says in the Gemara, you never have such things in your mind to think that anything that I'm saying is my opinion. If it's my opinion, I say it's my opinion. It's obvious it's my opinion. Everything else is not my opinion. It's not my translation. I'm not at a level to translate anything. So I provide you the sources, not so I look like I'm smart. Oh, wow, he remembers so many things by heart. Wow, we should listen to him. So does the, 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 what's called, the parrot also remembers things by heart. Well, you should listen to what he says too. Rabotai, I provide you the sources so you can fulfill the mitzvah of removing who? Amalek. You have a doubt. Oh, wait, what he just said right now, that just shook my world. Okay, good. Go home, double check. Double check. Maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I made the, I said the wrong page number. Double check. Maybe I, double check. Why? Because if what I say is true, the onus is on you to fulfill it. It's not just to be entertained. This is not a movie. I'm not looking for fans. It's not for you. Oh, wow. Sounds so good. Wow, it's really great. And tomorrow you forget everything. This Rabotai means if you hear something and it's opposite to what your actions are, the onus is on you to double check and then do it. If what I say is true, Meaning, that's what Torah says. You have to do it. When? ASAP. It's hard right now? Okay. ASAP, day later. And every day that you're not doing it is a problem. But nonetheless, you have to do it. So if the reason you're not doing it is because you're not sure, that's why I provide you the sources. So this Abotai is important. It's important for us to talk about this because a lot of people celebrated... Purim, celebrate Pesach, celebrate all these holidays, but Amalek and the Hamed stay around celebrating with us. So how did I start on this whole thing? This whole rent that I started to. Oh Hashem, a lot of people ask for refuah shlema. They send emails, text messages and so on to pray for them, to mention them in shurim. Some people sponsor lectures they go on our website uh, bezotashem.org and there's a section over there where you could sponsor a lecture for refuah or ilui nishmat refuah is like 180 dollars suggested donation ilui nishmat is 500 dollars 
99% of people don't do either one. They just tell me to do it anyway for free. Zedah, no problem. People ask for refuah all the time. But someone has been sending me emails for some time, and I said, you know what? We have to do something a little more. And we decided to start a WhatsApp group to read Tehilim for this sick person for two days, to read the entire book of Tehilim. And Baruch Hashem, uh, we had a group of people from around the world join this WhatsApp group, each committed to reading a certain amount of Tehilim. I was included in it as well, Baruch Hashem. And that was one way that we fulfilled the mitzvah of helping our brothers and sisters that can't help themselves. How? Sometimes a person has lost hope, doesn't even want to pray for themselves. So you pray for them. Not only are you helping them when they're in need, but also if you pray for somebody else, Chazal tells us, the sages tell us, that the prayers you pray for somebody else get fulfilled for you. So this is one thing that I think was relatively useful and very special about this porn for me. The second thing that I thought was very interesting about this poem is that I ran into some of my old pictures, like pictures of when I was younger, you know, when I was still a goy. And I wasn't a bad person. I didn't kill anybody or anything. I didn't steal. I didn't rob. But I was definitely not trying to be righteous. I was me. I was a regular secular person. And we have had these pictures, like everybody has pictures from, you know, from their life. But the reality is that my wife and I were looking at these pictures. Nothing wrong with the pictures themselves. I mean, I'm not a woman, I'm not immodest, it's just, it's the pictures. But we just thought that what good's going to come out of this, holding this picture of me in, uh, I don't know, my old life. For what? What purpose is it going to serve? What purpose is it going to serve? Like, what is it going to do? And it reminded me of a story that I believe it was Rav Mizrahi said this story one time that this couple, I did tshuva, they had their old wedding picture. They had their old wedding picture in the house. And their kids grew up and they saw this wedding picture that they had in the bedroom. Or the cleaning for Pesach or something like that. And they saw the wedding picture of their parents which was previous to tshuva. Now, everything, they look Jewish. When they had the wedding, they didn't exactly look Jewish. So the, so, so the little girls, little, little tzaddikim girls that don't know anything other than Torah and Hashem, they asked their parents, Ima, Abba, who are these goyim? Who are these goyim in the pictures? Who are these non-Jewish people in the pictures that you have in your bedroom? Meaning, you don't look alike anymore. Why? Once you do tshuva, it's not just your clothes change. Everything changes. Your face softens. Your behavior softens. Your, your, everything softens. If you've done tshuva and nothing changed, that means you haven't done tshuva. It just means you change clothes. So I said, you know what? Chash v'shalom. My kids are going to grow up one day. They're going to say, oh, who is this? Who is this? And you know what happened? One of them actually said, one, the one that can talk a little bit, my little girl, she saw a picture of me. I was, I don't know, my T-shirt and uh, sweatpants or something like that with my uh, dog that I used to have. And she looks and she asks my wife, who's that? Who's that? She looks, that's me. But my little daughter says, who's that? I said, Shem Rachem. Got to get rid of Amalek. Why? I'm not proud of who it was. No, I wasn't a criminal. 
I wasn't a thief. By most people's definition, I was actually a decent person. I donated a ton of money. I helped whoever I could help. But in reality, when it comes to Hashem, I was enemy of Hashem. Just like anyone else that has not done tshuva. Because that's what it says in Parashat Yitro. That's what it says in Parashat Vayit Hanan. That's what it says all over the Torah. If you're not fulfilling Hashem's mitzvot, if you're not fulfilling them, you're an enemy. So it's time to get rid of the enemy. The enemy sometimes is us. So with that being said, let's start this year with the introduction now. So, we have... Ken. Ken. Right, no, no. The, the story is what happened to this, uh, that's what happened to this couple. Right. Where she told, she asked her parents, who are these going? Meaning that these, she knew that Jews don't look like this. Don't look like immodest. Don't look like what they look like in their wedding. So they said, who are these going? Meaning it cannot be Jews because the kid is used to seeing a certain type of, a Jew look a certain type of way. So if a person doesn't look a certain type of way, they're saying, oh, it must be not a Jew. In essence, the parents, one second, the parents are trying to teach their kids a little bit of kafshut. Why? A Jew is always righteous. So if they don't look like it, it must not be a Jew. Or, or what Rabbi Boton, where I live, he's a tzaddik, he, uh, he teaches his kids. They see sometimes the people that come to Meknesset not exactly look like tzaddikim. And uh, they, they ask him, you know, Abba, how come uh, such and such looks like this or does this or does this? Oh, he doesn't know. He doesn't know, Miskin. He doesn't know he has to uh, do this, this, and this. So we're not insulting the Goim Chas V'Shalom. We're not allowed to insult anyone, unless it's an uh, enemy, enemy of Hashem or enemy of, of, uh, of Am Yisrael. But in essence, you have to make sure that the kid, first of all, knows that there's a right way and there's a wrong way. It's not okay to look like a non-Jew if you're, not a, if you're a Jew. It's not okay to behave like someone that's not in accordance with the Torah. It's not okay. To accept people for who they are is not okay. Why? We have a mitzvah in the Torah. It says, You must rebuke your brother. That doesn't mean that you have to start throwing rocks at them like you're in a Palestinian terrorist. No. Meaning, you see your brother, you see your sister going against Hashem. Sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes, most of the time, it's not. You have to say something. You have to do something about it. You can't just let it go and say, ah, 20 years, we're friends. The guy is still Mechalet Shabbat. I never told him anything. You have to do something. So your kids are going to be a reflection of you. If you welcome, if you, if you are pretending everything's okay and you're welcoming everybody to your house, you're never telling, you know that everybody is driving on Shabbat to your house and you're never saying anything. You're thinking that just by them eating kosher food on Shabbat, bigger than their head, eventually they're going to stop driving on Shabbat. You're not only not helping them, but you're also destroying your own kids. Why? Because your kids are going to say, listen, this guy, Tzvika, has been driving to my house for five years already on Shabbat. My father never said anything, and he's still driving after five years. So that must mean it's okay to drive on Shabbat. Why? 
My father loves him. My father loves this Tzvika guy, this Moshe guy that's driving on Shabbat to us. He never said anything to him, so it must be okay to drive on Shabbat. It can't be that bad. Why? Because if it was so bad to drive on Shabbat, by now my father would have said something. He would have done something. He would have told him at least, you know what? Don't drive to my house on Shabbat. Don't show me that you're an enemy of Hashem. Do something. And that's the thing that people mistake. They think that being Avraham Avinu and accepting guests means you're accepting him for what they are. That's because they didn't read the commentary of what Avraham Avinu actually did. Avraham Avinu, when the Malachim came to his house, he didn't know they were Malachim. He just thought there were three Arabs. And he told them, wash your, let me wash your feet. Well, he has nothing to do. He's in huge amount of pain because the third day after Brit Milah, which is known to be the most painful day after Brit Milah, no anesthesia, no painkillers, it's the hottest day in history, literally, hottest day in all of history. And he's saying, no, come to my house and what now else? Let me wash your feet. Why let me wash your feet? Because the form of idolatry that was very common in those days was to worship the sand, the dust that was on our feet, on the people's feet. So anyone that would not allow him to wash their feet, he knew they were idol worshippers. If you're idol worshippers, get out. Rule number two, once you come into the house, he's going to give you food. Now, after you finish eating and say, okay, you have two choices. One, you can pay me for the food. I just killed a whole cow for you. Each cow, $15,000, you have to pay. It's a rule. It's a rule of the land. Or you could just say, Birkat Amazon. Free. 15000 or 15 minutes. Which one you want? That means that Avraham Avinu was not just accepting everyone and tolerating it, and it's okay for you to be you, it's okay for me to be me. No, Rabotai. Avraham Avinu, Yitzhak Avinu, Yaakov Avinu fulfilled the entire Torah. Obviously, there's a way, there's a, you have to use a little bit of charisma, you have to be motivating, there's different ways to talk to different people, you can't uh, be aggressive all the time, you can't be aggressive sometimes with some people. You have to know how to do certain things. But to just teach our children or ourselves that you have to accept everyone for what they are is outright against the Torah. It's against the Torah because we have a specific mitzvah that says otherwise. We have multiple mitzvot that say otherwise. And when we do that, and just, I know a lot of people. There's actually one family that I know from Boca Raton. Mamash, they accept everyone. They bring people to their house every Shabbat. There's at least 20, 25 people in their house. At least 20, 25 people in their house. And I can tell you from all the learning that I've tried to do over the last several years, I know for sure it's not even a single mitzvah is being made. Why? No one does tshuva, no one improves, people can drive, people can do whatever they want. They accept everyone. All they're doing is just being a diner for them. They're just feeding them. That's it. They're not telling anyone to do tshuva, they're not telling anyone to change. Woman that one time we were there, one woman was so immodest, we had to leave. What, you're not going to say anything? No, you're not going to say, I have to leave. What am I going to do? Put a jacket on, something. So Rabotai, to just accept people for who they are and what they are, is not, that's not the way of Torah. I'm not saying you have to start throwing rocks at people or embarrassing them publicly or anything like that. It's a way to do things. But we all know that when we go to court, civil court in America, okay, you go to court in America, there's a rule in court. You're not allowed to wear a hat. Not allowed to wear a hat in any public building. Not allowed to wear a hat. 
It's a known thing. It's not necessarily a law of the land, but it's a known ethical rule. If you go to court and you have a hearing and you're wearing a hat, first thing before the judge is going to hear your case, before your own lawyer will talk to you, he says, take off the hat. Why? I'm religious. Religious don't really take off the hat. Why? It's not respect. In their eyes, not respect to wear a hat inside a building. Even though in the old days, it's the opposite. But what do we do? You go into that, you have a ticket for $500 pending because you sped somewhere or whatever. You went through a red light. The guy tells you, take off the hat. What are you going to do? You're going to be a little puppy. Oh, sure, sure. Take off the left. You're not going to say, no, I'm religious. I'm this. I'm not. You're not going to stand for it. Why? You want the guy to listen to you. So for that, we obey the law of the land. But for Hashem, we, don't, we have all types of uh, things. So we obey the law regardless of whether we admit it or not. We obey some, everybody obeys some type of law. Everybody drives a certain speed because they know there's a speed limit. Now, even though you can say, no, but I speed all the time. Yes, but you're not going to do it if you saw the cop. And as soon as the cop starts following you, you're not going to continue speeding. Why? You're afraid of the judgment. You're afraid of the punishment. And the same thing goes for all other laws. So to just accept people for who they are and what they are is not only against God, it's against just in general society. So yes, there's a way to do things of how to rebuke people and how to tell them and so on and so forth. It's usually better to do it to a third party, meaning bring somebody else to rebuke them or give them a CD, or bring them to a lecture, or something like that, that's better than you doing it yourself, because sometimes your old friends or family may not listen to you simply because they're used to just having a friendship with you, and not necessarily a teacher-student type of relationship. So they might, may not want to listen to you just simply because they want you to be their friend, or their brother, or their sister, not their teacher. So there's a way to do things, but nonetheless, we are obligated to do something. We're obligated to do something. Now, in this week's parasha, we have a musal that we learn from a goy. But this musal is so critical that it's actually a kitrug on Am Yisrael. In the beginning of the parasha, the first two verses, it says, "Vayikel Moshe et kol edad bnei Yisrael vayomer alem ele advarim asher tziva Adonai laasot otam sheshet yamim taasem melachau vayom ashvii yelachem kodesh Shabbat Shabbaton la Adonai kol haosebo melacha yumat lo tevaru esh bekol moshvotechem vayom Shabbat." So the first three verses is again the reminder of the mitzvah of Shabbat. Moshe assembled the entire children of Israel and said to them, these are the things that Hashem commanded. Six days your work, work may be done, but on the seventh day shall be holy for you, a day of complete rest for Hashem. Whoever does work on it shall be put to death. He's not worrying about if he's going to hurt anybody's feelings. Oh, listen, I was used to playing football every Shabbat. I was used to selling my shoes on Shabbat. I was used to selling cars on Shabbat. Wait, now you're going to kill me? Yes. He's not worried. He's not. There's no like a commentary. Oh, Moshe Rabbeinu really felt bad when he said, if you violate Shabbat, 
Hashem's gonna kill you or he's gonna kill you or one of the two whatever happens first it's no feeling bad why it's Hashem's commandment which bottom line is Rabotai the reason for every single one of the 613 mitzvot we have in the Torah is because Hashem said so that's the real reason every mitzvah every single mitzvah yes there are certain ta'amim, meaning there are certain flavors or different benefits that Hashem allows us to see and understand from observing Shabbat or kosher or tarat mishpacha all of those other things but in reality that's not the reason of why we do it so if let's say for example a person doesn't work he's retired he's retired he doesn't work so technically seven days a week is a vacation for him he still has to keep Shabbat if a person if a person doesn't like meat doesn't like it so when he eats it it's like he's only doing it because uh, you told him that on Yom Tov and on Shabbat in order for you to really celebrate you have to eat meat but he still have to eat kosher he's already doing you a favor that he's eating meat because he hates meat yes he has to eat kosher why because it has nothing to do with whether you like it or not it has to do with the fact that Hashem said so and the same thing goes with all of the mitzvot all of the mitzvot it doesn't matter whether you realize that tarat mishpacha family purity and having separation for approximately half the month and not touching any woman that's not your wife not even in her hand not even touching a hand that's not your wife not to shake hands not to hug not to kiss not to nothing unless she's your wife or your mom not to touch her and even that has to be done in modesty meaning you can't start like a lot of these people that I don't know they call themselves religious but they have pictures these so-called rabbis or religious people they have pictures on the internet with them and their wives like hugging like they're like you know they're like hugging kissing on the internet like I don't understand where does it say in the Torah that such a behavior is allowed it's completely immodest but they're doing it with the long beard that reaches the floor and the hat that reaches the sky so Rabotai, we have to double check everything. Double check everything. And the reality is that whether you realize that it's beneficial for a couple to have family purity or not is irrelevant. You're commanded to do it because God said so. That's the only reason. That's the only reason for all of the mitzvot. So now, Moshe Rabbeinu is telling us again for the twelfth time 12 times it mentions it in the Torah that if we violate Shabbat, we get a death penalty. 12 times. Why, wasn't enough first 11? Again we need? Yes, again. He's not worried about somebody being offended. Okay, we heard already 11 times. No, you ever have like one of these people tell you the same thing 500 times? Isn't it annoying? If it's your wife or your husband or your kid, you know, little kids, they tend to say the same thing 5,000 times. Abba, 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 Abba. By the time she finishes, you don't even want to be called Abba. You want to be called Ima already. So maybe she. <laughs> enough. But I want, I want candy, 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 candy. Five thousand times. Drives you crazy. So Moshe, no, you told us eleven times already. Why are you saying it again, number twelve? To make sure you got it. Each one of the times has a different significance to it. In this particular time where he says you shall not kindle fire this is one of the 39 
restrictions on Shabbat, not at light fire, but then you see that the rest of the parasha goes in a completely different direction. The rest of the parasha goes to the construction of the tabernacle. So we have, keep Shabbat. We have, don't violate it by lighting fire. And then we have the rest of the entire parasha. Hey, by the way, the Bet HaMikdash of the desert, this is how you build it. Oh, shouldn't we have more mitzvot of Shabbat? There's another 38 restrictions. Since you're already mentioning Shabbat 12 times, mention the restrictions at least. No. We have to show you where do we get these restrictions. Where do we get them from? This pasha. All 39 restrictions, things that you're not allowed to do on Shabbat, come from this parasha. Parashat Vayekel, these are all the things that we did to build the Bet HaMikdash, whether the one in the desert called the Tabernacle, or the real Bet HaMikdash that we had in Yerushalayim, the first one and the second one. All 39 activities that were done to build it are forbidden on Shabbat. To remind us that even to build the house of God is not allowed on Shabbat. Because logically you would think, hey, mitzvah, okay, uh, kosher, I understand kosher, this, everything I understand. But to do something for God, you must be allowed to do something for God. Why? The whole thing is for God. So you must be allowed to build a house for God on Shabbat. No. Shabbat is even more important than that. Shabbat is even more important than the house of God. So this is where we get the mitzvot, the 39 restrictions. After that, it goes into the first one, talks about the choshen. The choshen, the breastplate that the Kohen Gadol used to uh, wear. And Igmara, it says there's a story about a person by name of Dama Benetina. Dama Benetina. Dama Benetina was a, was a non-Jew that happened to have a very precious stone. And one day, the, the, uh, the Choshen of the Kohen Gadol lost one of the stones. They lost one of the stones. They need to find a perfect stone to replace it. It's not just any stone. They're not going to look at a little rocks, just put something in their head. It's good enough. Make a miracle. Make it into the stone you want. No, you have to find it. Very precious, very valuable stone. And only one person had it. Who? Nathan Benetina. So they heard it. The rabbis heard about it. They went to him and said, Oh, listen, we heard you're the one that has the stone. We need it for our coin gadol. Without it, psh, the whole Bet HaMikdash is uh, out of order. We don't have a coin gadol. We don't have a breastplate. We don't have, psh, the whole thing is, everything has to be perfect. Rabotai. It's not like, ah, oh, he's missing a stone. Big deal. He still has another 11. No, manage. So... How much do you want? He tells him a price. Oh, I want, let's say, a thousand. A thousand bucks. A million bucks. Whatever he wants. Okay, fine. He goes and he sees that the box that had the stone in it is under his father who's sleeping. He goes back to the rabbi. He says, I'm sorry, I can't sell it to you. They realize, oh, maybe he realized how much we need it. So maybe a thousand is not enough. Okay, 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 Yantas, fine, we'll give you ten thousand. I'm sorry, I still can't sell it to you. Okay, no, fine. You agree to a thousand though. We're gonna pay you a hundred thousand. A hundred thousand dollars we're gonna pay you. 
cash. No, I can't sell it to you. A million dollars we're going to give you. We need, there's no other place to get it. Better make that out of order without this. They don't care. The price is irrelevant. We'll go collect from people. It's Nakot, Masrot, whatever. We have to pay this guy the money. This guy is greedy now. He agreed to a thousand. Now he's not even agreeing to a million. They willing to give him a million. No. Not willing to give. Ten million. No. Can't sell it to you. Can't sell it to you. After that, they realize this guy is just, uh, is either greedy or he's crazy. They leave. They come back the next day because they realize they have no hope. They figure maybe if we bring some cash with us, throw it in his face, do something, convince him, maybe yesterday he was mad at us, I don't know, something. They start talking to him and say, listen, we came back from the stone. Oh, yeah, sure, I, uh, I'll have it. Look at him, fine. He comes back, he gives him the stone. He goes, and here, for the original price of a thousand, we agreed. Not ten million. So he says, they say, whoa, hold on a second. Ten million we agreed, but a thousand yesterday, explain to us what just happened here. We're confused. You're confusing us. Yesterday, we offered you a thousand, you said yes. Then you came back, you said no, we offered you ten million. You said no. What happened? He goes, oh, Yesterday, I couldn't sell it to you. Why not? What happened? The stone was sick. It called off. It, it, it was off for the day. It told you, I don't want to be sold today. I have a vacation. I'm not, what, what happened? Because, no, yesterday, my father was sleeping on the box that had the stone in it. And I, chas shalom, I didn't want to wake up my father. And the Gemara says, you do not know anything about kibud avayim. You know nothing about honoring your parents until you learn from Dama ben Netina Agoy that was not willing to take $10 million just not to wake up his father. Us, as soon as we wake up, we want the father to wake up, the mom to wake up and to make us breakfast and lunch and dinner and everything else and pay our bills too. So... Agmara, our Torah, also learns lessons from all types of Chachamim. doesn't matter whether they're Jewish or not. Of course, most of them were Jews. But nonetheless, if a non-Jew said something that was extremely valuable, the Torah mentions it. Why? Because the Torah is a document of truth. It's not a document of, uh, of uh, racism or, uh, or, uh, or lies. And sometimes when something bad happens, or one of the tzaddikim looks in an unfavorable way, it also mentions it. Even at times that Moshe Rabbeinu sinned, which really in our, in, in, in our level it's not a sin, but in his level he sinned. It mentions it in the Torah. When David HaMelech made a mistake, it mentions it in the Torah. When Tzidkiyahu, or Chizkiyahu, Chizkiyahu, made a sin. Why? He said, listen, he saw through Ruch HaKodesh that his son's going to be Menashe. And Menashe is going to be Oved Avodah Zarah. He's going to do idol worship. He says, you know what? Better off not get married. The prophet came to him and says, tomorrow Hashem decided he's going to kill you. Why? But all of Am Yisrael did Tshuva because of me. Everybody's learning Torah. Six-year-old kids know the entire Mishnah by heart. Why is Hashem killing me? Because you went against Hashem. What went against Hashem? The whole nation is learning Torah. No one works. No one works. Chizkiyahu put a sword in the, in the ground. He says, whoever doesn't learn Torah, I'm going to kill Meaning, all the job you have is to learn Torah. That's it. 
So what? I went, how did I go against Hashem? It says, you decided that you're not going to get married. Yeah, but that's because it's for Hashem. Because I know that my son from the marriage is going to be a Rasha. The prophet Isaiah says, that's not your cheshbon. That's not your math to make. You're obligated to do a mitzvah of getting married, do pu'obu. What happens, happens after it has nothing to do with you. You do what you have to do. You don't start doing accounting for Hashem. He didn't give you prophecy in Ruach HaKodesh for you to start uh, navigating the future for Him. Imagine. He says, okay, fine, so would you let me marry your daughter? I said, okay, marry my daughter. Why? It's Sadiq, Gemara says in Katan, the entire generation decided that if the Mashiach would come, it would be Chizkiyahu. That's how much of a tzaddik he was. But Rabotai, when he made a mistake, the Torah says it. Despite the fact that it doesn't look so good. When Shaul HaMelech, Shaul HaMelech, that the Gemara in uh, Masechet Megillah, says that if the tables were turned and Shaul came after David and David tried to kill Shaul, Hashem would allow Shaul to kill David. Meaning, Shaul was a bigger tzaddik than David. King David, the one Mashiach is coming from. Shaul was a bigger tzaddik. Shaul made a mistake. He used witchcraft. Does Torah hide it? No. Highlights it, actually. It says, you lost. You went against Hashem. That's it. You lost your kinghood. Oh, can you please? No, he tells the prophet. No, prophet Natan. No, no, come to me. Maybe I'll pray to Hashem together. He goes, I'm not praying with you. Why is tzaddik? You went against Hashem. I'm not praying with you. Please, I beg you. Dude. Highlights it. Why? You made a mistake. It's true. It happens. So, there's a lot of lessons to be learned in a Torah, both from Jews and non-Jews. But nonetheless, if it's in a Torah, that obviously means it's divine. The other thing we learn in this parasha, it's very interesting. Is that when it says they had to come up with money, come up with all types of money to build the construction of the tabernacle. says something extraordinary in chapter 35 verse 26 so it says actually starts in chapter in uh, verse 25 it says Every wise-hearted woman spun with her hands and they brought the spun yarn to the tur- of turquoise, purple, and scarlet wool and a linen. All the women whose hearts inspired them with wisdom spun the goat hair. The leaders brought the shawam stones and the stones of the settings for the ephod and the breastplate. In essence, the Chachamim say, if you notice... 
it mentions an order of people that were responsible for building the tabernacle and contributing to it. Contributing to it. It says, first, it mentions the men. The men, the men were the laborers. Then it mentions the women. And then it mentions the leaders. Who are the leaders? The rich people. Why are the leaders last? Should be the first. Usually, first thing you mention is the leader. Then everybody else. Sometimes you only mention the leader and you assume everyone else followed. But here it says the men, then the women, and then the leaders. Why? Rashi cites Rabbeinu Natan, the Midrash uh, Rabbah. He says the Nesim, the leaders, are actually being rebuked in this verse. Why? They had all the money. But they had the mentality of a lot of people, like people today, which is, I'll give whatever you're missing. Just get whatever you need to get. Get whatever money you need to get. Whatever you're missing, I'll fill it up. Meaning, let's say, for example, you're trying to collect a million dollars. And the guy has a million dollars. No questions asked. He has a hundred million dollars. You come to him and say, listen, can you help us out? We need a million dollars. Do cube. Get Am Yisrael to come back to Hashem. Da, 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 da. Well, listen, go get whatever you're going to get from other people. And whatever you're missing, come to me after. But you have the million, no? Yeah, have the million. But let's go try with other people first. See what they can give. Let's see what everybody else does first. Whatever, maybe you're going to get 900,000 from them and then I'll have to give you the million. I give you only 100,000. Right now, I'd have to give you a million. But if you collect 900,000 from everyone else, I don't have to give you a million. That means I give you 100,000. So why should I give you a million if I can only need to give you 100,000? The Torah rebukes those rich people. It rebukes them back then. It rebukes them today. Which is, you cannot treat staka like it's a business. It's not a business. When you're giving, you're giving, why? The same reason for every single other mitzvah. Hashem said so. That's why you give. It doesn't matter if everyone gives or doesn't give. When they actually said, listen, go get from everyone else and then come back to me, says that's why you were the least of all the contributors. The first contributor, the second contributor, they were significant. You're just mentioned because you gave something at the end. But in reality, you should have been first. Now, this whole issue created a problem. Why did it create a problem? Because it says that the, the women whose hearts inspire them with wisdom, contributed. Women were inspired. Who were they inspired by? Moshe Rabbeinu. Now the Gemara in Masechet Moed Katan says something extraordinary. It's mama scary, scary what the Yetzirah can do to us. The Gemara says in page 18b that 
Tashima, come here, proof. Proof of what? They were jealous of Moshe in the camp of Aaron. Hashem's holy one. What do you mean they were jealous? It says in that case, they actually hated Moshe Rabbeinu. Who hated him? Am Israel hated him. Why they hate him? Why they hate Moshe Rabbeinu? He just took you out of Egypt. You tova, ungrateful people. You hate Moshe. How could hate and Moshe be in the same sentence? How could it be? He took you out of Egypt. You were slaves for 86 years. You're missing arms before you get to Mount Sinai. You're missing eyes, missing ears, missing heads. Egyptians, what they did to you. You hate Moshe. How you hate Moshe? Why they hate Moshe? This verse. It says in Parashat Kitisa, we learn that unfortunately Am Israel did Cheta Egel. They worshiped the idol. They built the idol, they worshiped the idol. But the uh, Imre Tzvi says that when the men came to the women and told them, listen, give us your gold. Give us your gold. We need it for the golden calf. Women said no. The Jewish women said no. Erev Rav said yes. But the Jewish women said no. I'm not giving you my earrings, my bracelets, my this for, for this golden calf. No interest. But then when Moshe Rabbeinu says, whoever is interested in contributing to the tabernacle, contribute. All the women gave. All the tzaddikot started taking off their earrings, their bracelets, their necklaces, it is, the jewelry, the engagement ring, the this ring, the that ring, everything else started giving to Moshe. And the men became jealous of Moshe. Why? He says they're listening to the rabbi, but they're not listening to the husband. Must be something with him. And they actually told all of their women a formal warning. You're not allowed to be with Moshe in a room alone. Why? Maybe you have something with him. Why come you listen to him and not me? How come you listen to Moshe, the rabbi, not me? I have a situation like this. I have many situations like this in my life because people are crazy. But a situation one time, people both Hashem ask for all types of help. Sometimes they ask for Shlom Bayit help. Sometimes it works. I talk to the couple. We find out what the problem is. The couple actually wants to work things out. So you remind them of some things that maybe they forgot, and Baruch Hashem, you fix the problem. But sometimes it's a little more complicated than that. And by sometimes, it's usually 99% of the time it's like that. That in reality, one of them doesn't really want to fix it, or is just happy to complain because they like to complain, or they just like the way they live and they don't want to change. This creates a problem because if one person wants to change and the other one doesn't want to change, it creates a big problem. That's what leads to divorces and so on because how long are you going to be with somebody who doesn't want to change? So, sometimes you see, Hashem allows you to see things before they happen. And one time there was a, uh, a woman came to me and uh, she needed some help and the husband was complaining also. I started talking, I started realizing, you know what, it's really not the woman that's the problem, it's the husband that's the problem. 
that's the problem. And I tried telling him, he has to change, he has to do this, he has to do that. He decided that I'm Al-Malik. I'm a Malik, I am a Hitler, I am a Haman, all wrapped into one. He did not want to listen to me because all this time he's thinking that I'm going to be his friend. And I'm going to be on his side and, uh, you know, we're going to be like uh, the, uh, the, the Muslims. We're going to beat the wives in public, throw some rocks at them maybe. How could you not listen? Which, by the way, in Islam, this is a normal behavior, just so you know. There was actually an uh, undercover um, show that was made, Tzvi Cheskeli, which I'll mention to you a little bit more about it later on. Later on, it's already 11. Uh, I'll mention to you, he did an undercover research into the Muslim world. And something that no one's ever done before. Something unbelievable. And anyway, when he goes to uh, Syria, in one of his stops, he talks to a bunch of uh, you know Muslims, and he says, yeah, you know, I'm looking to find a bride for my, uh, for my brother-in-law. And he has this other guy that's pretending to be a Muslim also. He's like, oh, I'm looking for a bride for him. And they, uh, the Muslims are like, yeah, why are you going to Germany for? It's like, why? There's a lot of Muslims in Germany. No. Because, yeah, but they think they have rights over there. You're not even allowed to beat your wife. So, what do you mean? So he says, he pretends he's playing along. He goes, what do you mean you're allowed to beat your wife? So who beats her then? He goes, nobody. That's the problem. Nobody beats the wife. This is, this is, this is, this is what we're dealing with, Abutai. This is what we're dealing with. Sometimes, actually, unfortunately, Jews act like this, too. They also think that they're Muslims. And they beat their wives. I have a situation like this. There's one guy beats his wife on a weekly basis. She gave him eight kids. He gives her a beating. Eight kids. She gave him. He gives her in return a beating. And he makes her sleep in a separate room. She's not allowed to sleep with him in the same bed. Why? Because he thinks he's, uh, I don't know who he thinks he is. This people, he calls himself religious. Not like uh, this is a, uh, calls himself religious. Religious. So anyway, the Torah, by the way, just so you know, Torah says that someone that beats his wife has to be warned immediately by the Rav. If he continues, if he continues, he must be put on cherem. Meaning you cannot count him for minyan, you cannot accept him in the keilah, you cannot do business with him. The Torah is strictly against any man touching a woman. Strictly against it. A, a, a man that hits his wife, first of all, may Hashem cut off his hands. Second of all, it probably will happen soon. And third of all, the Keilah is not allowed to accept him, pray with him, do business with him, or even talk to him. It's to be put on a cherem if he's not, not going to stop. Such people do not deserve to live, in my opinion. If it was a mistake or this or that, he lost his school. One time it's a different story, but some of these people make it a habit. Torah is strictly against such people. So the people of Israel, unfortunately, were jealous of Moshe Rabbeinu because their wives listened to Moshe and did not listen to them. And the same thing, Avdil me or Moshe, but the point is the same thing happened to me more than once where I tried to help a couple and the husband thought that, oh, 
if he's not on my side that's because he likes my wife he likes my wife that's all I need is another wife Baruch Hashem one wife I love my wife is the greatest wife in the world I don't need another one what any other one for one's enough we're not allowed in Judaism anyway at this point Rabbeinu Gershon thousand years ago made a polygamy is no longer allowed even though according to Torah it's allowed, but a thousand years it was forbidden a thousand years ago, we're not allowed anymore. But the point is, Abutai, people are crazy. And I deal with them on a daily basis. It's a rabbi slash psychiatrist slash therapist slash slash all types of things. Slash a lot of things. So now, usually when I have such situations where I see that there's a problem, I already tell people ahead of time. If it's the husband is the problem I see from the beginning, I say, by the way, just so you know, I'm going to try to do, help you whatever way I can, but I'm just letting you know. I'm going to tell you the truth, whatever the truth is. Your husband is probably not going to agree with me because he's the problem. I'm letting you know that it's only a matter of time before he thinks that I like you or you like me or something like that. That of time. And this is like clockwork. It happens one time after another. Why? How can I listen to rabbi and listen to my wife? Or listen to a husband? What happened? People don't want to see anything wrong with themselves. They do not want to see anything wrong with themselves. And this is a problem that didn't just start now. This is a problem that started already since creation. Since creation. So, let's go into the Mishnah. I mean, there's much more in the parasha that we can go over, but we had a long introduction. Let's go into this Mishnah and try to complete it, or at least another part. So this Mishnah in Avot also connects to all of the things that we just said. How? I don't know yet. We'll figure that out along the way. Uh, Translation, seven traits characterize an uncultivated person, a.k.a. golem. And seven character traits characterize a learned one, a chacham. A learned person, a chacham, does not begin speaking before one who is greater than he is in wisdom or in years. This we already went over. Someone that is has wisdom also seeks wisdom. That's why every Chacham in Judaism is called Talmit Chacham. Meaning, by default, Talmit Chacham meaning I'm a student. Along forever. Rabbi Vadia, Allah Shalom, 93-year-old Talmit Chacham. Rav Kaduri, Allah Shalom, some say he died at 104, but some say he was 104 for 20 years. We don't know really how old he was, but Talmit Chacham, 104 years at least. All of these tzaddikim, kdoshim, talmidei chachamim. Students. Why students? Why? Because a chacham knows he must be a student permanently. Learn forever. If you learn one verse in the Torah, like I said earlier, one verse in the Torah, you can learn it for a million years and still not be finished. If you really want to learn it. There's that much divine nature in the Torah that you could literally never complete it. So a learned person is by default never going to do certain things first and foremost he will never speak before someone who's greater than him in wisdom a lot of people like to hear themselves talk 
So sometimes they'll ask you a question, not because they want you to answer it. They just want to know if you know it, because they know the answer. I have such people. I used to have a student like this on a regular basis. I would teach him on, on, on a, uh, I teach him a weekly, private basis. I don't do it anymore, but I would teach him. And he would ask me questions once in a while. But after once or twice, I kind of realized that it's not really a question. He just wants to know if I know. So he'd ask me a question. I said, oh, tell me, tell me, tell me. Oh, no, you don't know? I said, it's a matter if I know, I don't know. You know, so tell me. Maybe I don't know, maybe I know. Whatever, just tell me whatever. You want to tell me something. In reality, some people just like to hear themselves talk. They're asking you a question to test you, not to, te- not to get an answer. That's a golem. That's an uncultivated person. That's an incomplete person. Achacham, first and foremost, is not looking for such things. Achacham knows if a rabbi came, a teacher came, somebody that has more wisdom than him came, all I want to do is be a vessel to listen. What does he have to say today? He's not talking. I'll wait till he talks. I'll wait till he talks. Rabbi Akiva, Moshe Rabbein who said Rabbi Akiva was greater than him. When Hashem showed him a prophecy that Rabbi Akiva would come to the world, Moshe said to Hashem, if you have such a person coming up in a thousand years from now, give him the Torah. Why are you giving it to me? Hashem says, be quiet, I'm going to give it to you. Obviously, Rabbi Akiva is great. His rabbi, we're always going lower, meaning that the higher we are, his rabbi has to be greater. Who's his rabbi? Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinos, or Rabbi Eliezer Agadole, he's also called. Rabbi Eliezer Agadol, Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinos, same thing. His rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinos, who's his rabbi? Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan. So Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinos, went to learn by Rabbi Yochanan. In the beginning, the Gemara says he was 28 years old and didn't know anything. Rabbi Eliezer didn't know anything. His father, Hokinos, was filthy rich. Tzaddik also, and rich. And he sees his son, Hokin, he sees his son Eliezer crying on the, on the farm. He says, why are you crying? Why did I give you too much work? Want me to give you less work? Do less work, no problem. He goes, no, no, Abai, I decided that I want to go learn Torah. He goes, well, learn Torah, you're 28 years old. What to learn Torah? If you want to learn Torah, you're already at the start as a kid. Now, when it's 28 years old, you're to start learning Torah. You're old already, you're old man. Old man learned Torah. Listen, go make some money, build a farm with me, build a business, get married, have a kid, your kid's going to be tzaddik. Your kid's going to be tamid chacham. Yeah, more than one kid, more than one kid, tamid chacham. Or like today, two kids and a cat. The cat's going to be Tamit Chacham. Whatever, something, no? Somebody's going to be Tamit Chacham. He continued crying me scan. Three days he didn't eat, he didn't drink, he didn't do nothing. All he did is just cry. He cried so much, the sky opened, the heavens opened, Hashem sent who? Eliyahu Navi. Eliyahu Navi came to Rabbi Eliezer ben Hokkenos before he was Rabbi Eliezer. When he was just a little Eliezer, didn't know nothing. He was crying himself to death. And the Yawanavi came to him, he says, if this person is willing to cry for the Torah such, to such an extent, he's willing to die for the Torah before he even has a Torah, must be somebody special. So the Yawanavi came to him as an old man. He says, why are you crying, son? He says, I want to learn Torah, but everybody tells me I'm too old and I can't learn. Ah, 
if you want to learn Torah, no problem. Just go to Rabbi Yochanan. Go to Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai. Go learn from him. You'll be fine. Where is he? Yerushalayim. He was so excited that somebody says it's even possible. He didn't care Eliyahu Navi, no Eliyahu Navi. He didn't care permission, no permission. Letting his father know, letting his father not. He didn't care about anything. He took whatever he had with him and left. Left everything. His father has a multi-billion dollar business, left it. Everything he left. Why? Somebody says I could go learn Torah at 28 years old. He went to Rabbi Yochanan. And every day came to Rabbi Yochanan, he says to him, okay, what do you know, son? He goes, I don't know anything. He goes, you know, Shema Yisrael, I don't know nothing. Nothing I don't know. All kept said, so every day I'm going to teach you halacha. He sees the kid crying, 28-year-old kid. He's crying, his skin, still crying. He says, okay, I'll teach you halacha, a little halacha every day. Okay. After eight days, eight days, Rabbi Yochanan is trying to teach him halacha, and he responds, he goes, do you remember we learned this a couple of days ago, what did it say? And Eliezer, before he became Rabbi Eliezer, speaks. And the Gemara says, such foul smell came out of his mouth, that Rabbi Yochanan stepped away. It's disgusting. Disgusting. It's not like sometimes somebody ate something and they smell terrible, they forgot to brush their teeth, it smells terrible. No, no, this was Rabotai something else. It was like somebody died in his mouth. Yochanan says, what'd you eat today? So, I ate, I ate. Where are you staying? Where are you staying? Oh, I'm staying at the Rabbi uh, so-and-so. Oh, you ate over there with him? Yeah, yeah. Okay. He goes, Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan, double checks, goes, he eat with you. He goes to the rabbi. He goes to the, where the host. He goes, he eat with you. No, he didn't eat with me. He goes, did he eat with you yesterday? No, no, he eats by himself. He goes, what do you mean he eats by himself? I don't know. Check, maybe in the house. So he goes to the house. Checks to the people there. He says, no, does he eat with you guys? No, no, he doesn't eat with us. He says he eats with you. No, he doesn't eat with me. He goes, all I know is that every day, once in a while, he goes behind the pillow he takes something behind his pillow and he puts it in his mouth. He says, let me see his room. Rabbi Yochanan goes to his room. He takes off his pillow. What does he see? Sand. Mud. Behind his pillow. For eight days, Rabotai, Rabbi Eliezer was eating mud. Was eating sand. Why? He didn't want to be a kapat abonot for anybody, an onus on anybody. To, you know, maybe they, you know, they're already hosting him. He says, I don't want to be a cost to anyone. They can kick me out. Then I can't learn Torah. For a week, Rabotai, for more than a week, he's eating sand. Us, if the steak wasn't cooked medium well, we already want to turn it back. We want to give it back because it's medium well and not well done. If they didn't put the tomatoes the right way, do, 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 it's no good. What is this restaurant? Five star? Ah, I'll put a bad review on the internet. Bad review. Yeah, the food wasn't warm. The tomatoes weren't fresh. They were only half a day old. Weren't fresh. They didn't just come out of the farm now. The meat wasn't slaughtered in front of me. It was already uh, three hours old. They didn't use every single, uh, you know, vitamin and nutrient in my steak. You call this a restaurant? 
Eight days Rabotai is eating sand. Sand. Can you imagine eating sand? You know sand. You know what they do with sand? What do they do with sand? They made it into glass. Sand, all the glass you see, sand. Which, by the way, if you ever see, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable how they do it. It's actually even more unbelievable who's the first one to figure it out thousands of years ago. It's not like something they figured out in recent generations. They already had sin in the days of the Gemara. They already had the meaning of the glass in the days of the Gemara. It was just much more expensive. But sand, you have to heat it 3,000 degrees, which they have to have these huge... Oh, another lesson. Anyway, Gabutai, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And this one is eating sand. Not even the glass. So Rabbi Yochanan says to Rabbi Eliezer, just like there was the foul smell coming out of your mouth for the sake of Torah, so will be the beautiful Torah. The sounds of Torah that will come out from the same mouth. And from now on, you come eat with me. You come learn with me. He took him under his wing. Years passed, and they had a gathering. Hokinos' father was being annoyed by his other sons. The other sons were saying, listen, Eliezer left years ago. Why should you give him part of your will if he's not even contributing to the family business anymore? He's gone. He didn't write. He didn't read nothing. Take him out of the will. Why should we share anything with him? If he just appears now all of a sudden, why should we give him anything? He says, you're right, but I have to ask my rabbi. Who's the rabbi? Rabbi Yochanan. I have to go to Yerushalayim. And not like today where you just uh, text message, hey, Rabbi, should I kill my wife or should I uh, stay married? On text message asking. You don't want to meet the rabbi anymore. Should I have another kid, Rabbi, or should I uh, tell my wife to have an abortion? They ask on text these days everything they ask. And you tell them, no, 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 don't have an abortion. It's not allowed. Oh, Rabbi, I was hoping you say, yes, I already did it. I already killed a kid. I already did. I was hoping you'd say, I thought you were going to say yes, Rabbi. Ah, I missed it. And you just really you committed murder, right? You know, the baby inside is living. The fact that you didn't see it doesn't mean it's not living. People kill and murder on a regular basis, and then they go to Shemaim and they realize, wow, I didn't kill anybody. You killed 25 people. What are you talking about? People think it's a joke. It's not a joke. So now, he goes to his rabbi in Yerushalayim, and he sees there's a gathering. All the chashuvim, all the important people are there. Rabban Yochanan is there, and Rabban Yochanan sees Okinos, the Gvir, rich person, but he's also a student. And he knows, he doesn't realize that his son is over here. So he has him sit down, he says, Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer, why don't you give us a Dvar Torah? Why don't you give us a Dvar Torah? Now remember what I said in the beginning of the story. Rabbi Akiva is Rabbi Eliezer's student. Moshe Rabbeinu said Rabbi Akiva is greater than him. Rabbi Eliezer is the teacher of Rabbi Akiva. What, what did Rabbi Eliezer say to Rabbi Yochanan when he said go teach? What did he say? Look for the Rav, Chas Shalom, I don't know anything. What do I know? You're my teacher. How could a little drop of water add to the ocean? If, uh, if, uh, if uh, he said in an analogy, he said, if a dog comes and licks from the ocean, licks a couple of licks of water from the ocean, does it make a difference in the ocean? This is like my Dvar Torah next to yours. What do I know? 
I don't know anything. Rabban Yochanan said to him, Oh, you don't want to say Dvar Torah because I'm here, because I'm your teacher? Then I'll leave. Rabbi Eliezer got so scared his teacher is going gonna, is gonna to leave, he got up, he started talking, started saying Dvar Torah. And the Gemara says, no one in the history of mankind has ever heard these divrei Torah. One chidush after another to such an extent that his face became light like Moshe Rabbeinu's was when he came down from Mount Sinai. And he taught Torah from that moment all the way until the next morning. Straight. No breaks. No WhatsApps. No bathrooms. No coffees. No air conditioning. No nothing. Straight Torah. His face became like Moshe Rabbeinu's from Mount Sinai. His father saw him. He couldn't believe this is his son. He says to him, you know, I came here to remove you out of the will and only have your brothers. But now I'm realizing that I'm going to remove all of them out of the will and give everything to you. And Rabbi Eliezer ben Hokino says, Abba, I don't need any of it. I have Torah. I don't need any of the money. I have Torah, meaning as long as you need money, as long as you feel the need for money, you still don't have Torah. That's why all of the Chachamim, you ask them, so you, you pray for Panasat Torah this year? You pray for more money? You pray for a bigger building? You pray for... You don't, they don't even know what you're talking about. The Chafetz Chaim, somebody overheard him giving a blessing to his son. May you never be rich. So they ask for the love. Why would you tell us? Why would you bless your son? Don't ever have a lot of money. Like, isn't that good? Money is good because I know what my son needs. Money is definitely not it. Money is only going to get in the way. So, a person who knows that somebody else is wiser than him will never talk before him, even if he's older than him. Also, we have to respect the people that are Baalini Sayon, people that have experience, more experience than us. A person who is wise will never interrupt the words of his fellow. This is a common thing that people do today. They don't like to let anybody else finish talking because they're so excited about what they're going to say. They're so excited about what they're going to say themselves, they care less about what you're going to say or what you're saying at all. They want to interrupt you. This also shows that the person is a golem. person is an uncultivated person. He's a, golem is not necessarily just an insult. It means that the person is not cultivated. He's not finished. He has some stuff in him. Yeah, some, some, of, the, some of the byproduct. But he's not a finished product. He's not a finished product. Golem is what Adam Arishon was before Hashem put the Ruach Elohim into him. It's just the body, but no soul. So here, it's somebody that has a few bits of information. He learned a little chumash, he learned a little gemara, he learned a little this, he learned a little that, but he has no midot. So he has information, but he doesn't know how to apply it. That's a golem. A chacham does not answer impetuously, meaning, he's never, you can ask him a question, and he's going to answer you on the spot without thinking about it, even if he knows the answer. Why? Anyone that has a little bit of wisdom knows that it could be that you, even though you're asking a question, you actually may be intending for it to be a different question. Sometimes people don't know how to ask questions. 
You know, it's a certain skill. It's actually a specific skill set to know how to ask good questions. It's not a given. Most people think that whatever you have in your head, everyone's going to understand. So they give you six words to make you understand the whole story you have in your head, they're going to understand. And sometimes they'll ask you a question like in the middle of the story. They assume you already know the whole story. You just got to hear now. They have a story three years old. You just got to hear now. They assume you already know everything. Why? Because it's so important. You must know the story. So a person that has a little bit of wisdom knows that he has to assess the question. He has to assess whether the question is a complete question or there's outside factors. There's outside factors of, uh, that have to do with it. So I'll give you an example. Someone asks, someone asks, how do you study two, three, four hours a day of Torah if you're working? What's the answer? Somebody says, okay, I work, I have a wife, I have a kid. So how do I fit studying, let's say, Two hours of Torah a day. I work, I have a wife, I have kids. How do I fit two hours of learning Torah every day? Under those conditions. What's the answer? Excuse me? Sleep less. Sleep less. Okay. Morning and night. Morning and night. Okay. Work less. But I don't have an option. I have nine to five. The company's not going to give me less of a schedule. And I'm already used to sleeping eight hours a day. And uh, morning and night is the problem, is that uh, I have to go to work and I have to go to sleep. Multitask. Multitask. Work while I uh, study Torah. It's not studying Torah, it's entertainment. Studying Torah means you have to put full attention to the Torah. Yes, you can listen to a lecture in the, in the background, but it's not studying Torah. Studying Torah means you are putting your full mind into it. You know what the answer is? Questions. What kind of job do you have? What kind of wife do you have? How many kids do you have? How much time do you actually uh, work? How much time do you sleep? What do you do with the rest of the time? So the last time I asked the person these questions, I asked him, what kind of job do you have? And he told me what kind of job he has. And I asked him, what kind of schedule do you have? He told me nine to five. I asked him, are you married? He said, yes. You have kids? He said, yes. I said, okay, so you work nine hours. You work eight hours. But there's 24 hours in a day. What do you do with the other 16? Meaning at this point, I still haven't given him an answer. Why? It all depends. The answer depends on his answers. I need to know what his excuses are. Why out of 16 hours a day, he can't study too? What's his Yetzirah telling him? Me telling him, listen, you should try harder. You should sleep less. You should... Uh, do. All those things are not relevant. Why? They may be relevant to somebody else, but not to him. Why? Because Yetzirah is telling him already all the things I want to tell him. He's already given him an answer for it. Sleep less, I got to tell you, no, I have to sleep. My job is very, very consuming. I need to, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a this. I have to have my mind. I have to sleep at least nine hours uh, a minute. You know, I have to sleep all the time. Technically, it would be ideal if I was in a coma permanently. I have to sleep a lot. And, you know, so you tell the guy sleep less, it's already the eyes, the wrong rabbi for me. You tell the guy, listen, uh, you know, what kind of job do you have? You know, it's, your he shows that, it shows that you have interest in his life. But in reality, you have, you're trying to figure out what the excuse is. So here, Rabotai, sometimes the biggest and most important answer is a question. 
Why? To really get the real question. He's asking, how can I study two hours a day? I'm asking, why can't you? Why? You only work nine. You only work eight. There's 24 hours in a day. We miss the 16 hours. What do you do with the rest of the time? Oh, I take care of my kids. What do you mean? Where's your wife? You have a wife? Oh, yeah. So what is she doing? Oh, she's also taking care of kids. What do you have, 75 kids? No, I have one kid and a dog. Okay, so what do you need two people to carry two kids and a dog? What's the problem? Meaning, there has to be something more. Maybe the wife is not really supportive. She wants to go out. She wants to, she's not even taking care of the kid. He comes home and takes care of the kids for a half hour, an hour, but then she, she wants him to take her out for dinner every night. So in reality, the kid's not the problem. The wife's the problem. We have to deal with the wife now. We can't, the kid, Miskin, what is he? He just wants to sleep and eat. What does he do, Miskin? Or if the kid is a little gargamel, we have to figure out what's happening. Why is the kid acting like a little mini Hitler? What, what's happening? Why is he Hitler? Why? We have to figure out. So the questions are more important. Why? Because people most of the time don't know how to ask questions. They ask you blank questions, but the answers are not, are not blank. I have this one guy who sends me for the last few weeks, he sends me maybe seven, eight questions a day. I don't answer a single one. Usually I answer all of you know, you've sent me questions before, usually I try to answer everyone. This particular person, I, don't, I answered a few. After that I realized he's not asking questions. He's just filing complaints. He's complaining about things. He doesn't care about the answers. He just cares about the questions. Some people just care about him you know, making complaints and asking questions. So the reality is, Rabotai, is asking questions is actually a certain skill set and also a certain level of wisdom. If you really want to know the answer, you have to think deeply about your question. And this is what goes to the next one. A wise person asks relevant questions and replies appropriately. He's not going to ask you about Mashiach during a shir about Shabbat. He's not going to ask you about Shabbat during a shiur about Mashiach. Or maybe he will, if it depends. If it has something to do with it. Sometimes people ask you questions that have nothing to do with anything. A wise person is not going to do it. Why? Because he knows that when someone is focused on one particular thing, you take him somewhere else, number one, his mind may not be there. So you may not have all the information readily available right here for your particular question, which you're going to end up losing out on. Number two, you're affecting the rest of the room. Twenty other people are thinking this topic. Why are you asking something else? A wise person is not going to do such a thing. And this leads us finally to where we're up to, which is, He discusses, a wise person discusses first things first and last things last. So, here is a certain instructions for each person to have a set order both in their life physically and mentally you are obligated to have a mental order to your way of thinking to the way that you operate yourself why because if you're one of these random people you ask one question then you ask the next question has nothing to do with the first question and then you're giving an answer to a question nobody asked and you're all over the place you're not going to get anywhere. A lot of people have, you know, you tell them, listen, you know, you're learning already for five years, you still know nothing. Why? You ask the guy, you know, give me Gvat Torah. Oh, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You're learning for five years. How do you not know? What'd you learn this week? Oh, I learned some parasha. Okay, tell me about the parasha. Oh, I don't remember. What, you don't remember nothing? I didn't tell you, give me the whole parasha by heart and every commentary ever made in the last 10,000 uh, uh, hours. Just give me Rashi. Give me uh, something. I don't know. 
Why don't you know? Because people are all over the place. They first of all, they never they start but never finish things. They'll start a book. So you see, you go to people's houses, they have a library like this in every wall. But you start looking, you open the books, and you see every book after the first, like maybe 30 pages, you see somebody read it because it's bent, it's there's maybe writing on it a little bit or something. After that, brand new. No one's ever touched it. Nothing. Every book, one after another. Everybody reads the introduction, a few first one, two, three chapters. After that, 300 pages, incomplete. No one ever touched it. No one ever touched it. It's like, why do you have all these books? Complete one. Oh, yeah, no, I like that book. It was good. I never got to it. Yeah, because you're getting to 900 other books. Finish a book, then get to the next one. Finish a book, then to the next one. Finish a book, get to the next one. If your way of thought, you're already advanced, and you're able to have a sedil, meaning that from this hour to that hour, you're learning this. From that hour to that hour, you're learning this. From that hour to that hour, you're learning this. You've already had a, a you know, advanced level where you have several hours a day on a regular basis, you're learning Torah. And you are now at a point where you're able to actually even divide up that time to learn certain things for certain parts of the day. Fine. You're already advanced level. But the reality is, Rabotai, 99% of people are nowhere near that level. 99% of people are still need to learn Pasha Shavua. That's why the Shulchan Aruch, the Book of Laws for Judaism, makes it an obligation for each and every single one of us to read the Parashat Shavuah three times every week. Twice basic, one with commentary. Why? It's the foundation. If you don't have enough time to even read Parashat Shavuah, you definitely don't have time for all these other books that you have. Where it doesn't matter who the rabbi is. To read Rabbi Shalom Arush's Emunah book is good. And to read Rabbi Lazar Brody's book is good. And to read Rabbi Mizrahi's book is good. And to read that this one's book is everything is good. But not before Parashat Shavuah. First Parashat Shavuah, then everything else. If you don't have time for Parashat Shavuah, you don't have time for anything else either. You have to read Parashat Shavuah. Why? Because that's the foundation. Without the foundation, you have any, you have nothing. So anytime that I tell people, listen, you have to take on Musa, you have to learn Musar every single day, that's assuming you're already reading Parashat Shavua, the weekly portion, the weekly Torah portion. If you're not learning the weekly Torah portion with commentary, by Rashi at least, you haven't achieved anything. Some people are able to read it all in one day. Some people are able to divide it up into the whole week. You know, one, one portion for each day, seven days uh, of the week. Some people are able to read over a couple of days. Whatever you need to do, you got to do it. You have to read the weekly parasha. That's Allah from Shulchan Aruch. So, you have to have order. Where do we learn this from? We learn this even from Hashem Yitbarach himself when Moshe Rabbeinu, when he told Moshe Rabbeinu, go to Egypt and free my nation. Go to Egypt, talk to Paro, tell him, I sent you. That's it, free them. So Moshe Rabbeinu says to Hashem in the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 11, he says, who am I that I should go to Paro 
And who am I that I should take the children of Israel out of Egypt? Meaning that Moshe asked Hashem two questions. First of all, who am I to that I should go to Paro? He's a king. I'm not a king. And who am I that I should take the children of Israel? That I'm not the most righteous out of the nation. My brother is Aaron. So you see that the way that Hashem responded to him, Hashem responded to Moses saying, first of all, you have nothing to fear from Paro, because I would be with you. So he responded to him first, don't worry about who Paro is. You have nothing to be scared of. You don't need to be a king. You're my king. You're my son. Don't worry about nothing. I'll take care of you. I'm with you. And then he says, as far as freeing the children of Israel, First of all, your brother is going to be ecstatic about it. Aaron is going to be ecstatic about it. But even before they got to that argument of about Aaron, he says, who am I to free the nation? Maybe they made sins, this, that, and the other. Maybe they, they have no right to be freed. Hashem says, the merit of the Jewish people is that they're destined to receive the Torah. That's their merit. Their merit actually is in the future. But we see that even Hashem... Hashem Barach himself answered Moshe Rabbeinu in order. He asked those questions in order. Hashem answered him in order. But, but, Rabbeinu Yonah says, this is not always appropriate. Meaning, a Chacham is not just someone that just answers in order, like a computer. Like, you remember you had, uh, I remember when I was a kid, it was uh, these uh, little mini computers. You ask it questions, and it would answer you. You could ask multiple questions. It would answer these little questions. I forget what it's called. But what it would do, it would answer you in order. So what color is, uh, I don't know, the sky? What uh, color is the ground? What color is the sun? It would answer you, the sky is blue. You know, uh, the ground is brown, the sun is yellow, and so on. It would answer you in order. Rabbeinu Yonah says, that's not a chacham. That's a computer. What's a chacham? Rishon, Rishon, Acharon, Acharon. What's Rishon, Rishon, Acharon, Acharon? Not first things first, last things last. Not like that. Meaning, not only are you answering in order, but you're also answering, answering in priority. If the guy says... I got only two questions for you. I know you're busy. Everybody always says, I know you're busy, but... Every question starts this way. I know you're really busy. You don't have any time for any... I know, I know. But... And they give me Megillat Esther question. Megillat Esther. And then they have Mordechai. We never saw his Megillah. I get it every week. They tell me all the Megillah. I know I don't have any time, but they have a question. The whole question should have been three words. But they want to tell me the whole background. They think I have a lot of time in my hands. Anyway, I know you're busy, but... What's the priority? The guy says, I only have two questions. Okay, what's the two questions? Question number one, should I go to this specific Bet Knesset? And question number two, should I get a divorce? Whoa! Jones! Hey, hey, oh! So obviously you can't answer question number one first. Question number one's priority just got thrown out the window. Why? Why get divorced? That's Chacham Rabotai. Chacham 
knows question number one is just a segue to get you to, 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 to get busy on something else. It's not important. In reality, question number two is your full focus. Full focus. That's a chacham. Next, Rabotai, is in order to answer all the questions, in order to get to a point of being a chacham, you have to have an enormous amount of patience. How much patience do you have to have? Now all the stories we learn in the Gemara, in the Torah, the Rambam, in Morei Nevuchim, the guide of the perplexed, in chapter 3, he says, why do we have, why does Hashem have all these stories in the Gemara? Why does he have all these stories in the Torah? What do we need these stories for? He says, in order to know and learn the ways of Hashem. Meaning, what, how does Hashem behave and how does He expect us to behave? Because we're supposed to emulate Him. So what kind of patience are we expected to have? What's our goal? Well, I'll give you one story. You guys have all heard the story of, of, of Hillel. Hillel is a ken. The Gemara says that somebody came to Hillel and he says, I want you to teach me the entire Torah on, on one leg. He told him the whole Torah by He had an enormous amount of patience. Now, Hillel Zaken was known as someone that never gets mad. So these two falachim, these two guys, two hustlers, made a bet. 400 zoos. 400 zoos, which was an enormous amount of money. He says, listen, he never gets mad. I bet you I can get him mad. I can get anybody mad. I get the rock mad. The rock got mad at me, quit. It became water. Say, I'm going to go get Hillel mad. Whoever this Hillel is, I'll get him mad. So, the Gemara says, he goes to Hillel on Friday. Now, in those days, not like today, you turn on the water, hot water comes out, water, the soap comes out, this comes out, you just you have your pleasure, you're like in Taj Mahal. In those days, you had to heat the water, you had to get the water, you had to heat the water, oh, just take a shower. So now you have to take a shower before Shabbat, by the way. It's also halacha. You have to take a shower before Shabbat. You have to take a shower all the time. But in reality, you have to take a Shabbat, sh- shower before Shabbat. Have to. You have to take a shower before Shabbat. So, Hillel was trying to warm up the water. Finally, he gets into the water. And so he hears somebody scaring, screaming in the, outside of his house. Mikan Hillel, Mikan Hillel, who here is Hillel, who here is Hillel, meaning, it's like saying, who's Moshe Rabbeinu, who's Moshe Rabbeinu, who's Moshe Rabbeinu, that's how you speak, ask people politely, knock on a door, excuse me, it's Kvod Arav here, he's screaming at the top of his lungs like he's Hillel, owes the money, who is Hillel, where is this Hillel, who is this Hillel, Hillel hears this, Puts the robe on, runs outside. Yes, 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 my son. Yes, yes, how can I help you? How can I help you? Oh, you Hillel? That's how you talk to Kvod Arav. That's how you talk to Gdol Adol. I have a question for you. Okay, what's your question, my son? Why do Asian people have their eyes like this? (laughs) 
Me, you ask me that question. I don't answer you with words. I answer you with body language. He later again says to him, Oh, that's a fantastic question. What a great question you have. They live in a certain part of the world where the sun shines extra time and they close their eyes and eventually their bodies changed and their, their eyes are closed half. Not like us over here. Okay. You have any other questions, my son? No, no more questions. Okay, he goes back into his bath. He has to warm up the water again. It doesn't stay hot. He has to warm up the water. Warm up the water. Finally, warm up the water. Take off the robe. Since they're young. As soon as he sits down. Mikan Hilel! You just know Mikan Hilel. You're asking who's Hilel? You just saw him 20 minutes ago. Why are you asking who's Hilel again? Mikan Hilel! Mikan Hilel! He's screaming like he never saw him before. Like he never saw the guy. Who is Hilel? Who is Hilel? I need... What a kapata of no, embarrassment. So he asks, uh, he comes out, yes, 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 my son. How can I help you? You have something? You need something? Yeah, I had a question. Why do the African people have bigger thighs than us? Or bigger feet than us? And he gives them an explanation. Oh, because they work a manual labor over there and they do this and they do that and over time it changed it gives them some explanation that happened fantastic question he tells them you have any other questions no no I'm fine I'm fine thank you goes back warms the water gets into the water 20 minutes to warm the water me skin it's not like today you turn on the little thermos five minutes you have tea for 20 people Hey, you have to warm up the water, the whole bath. Takes 20 minutes to warm up the water. As soon as he dips into the water, what do we hear? Me kanilel, me kanilel. And it keeps going. Again and again and again and again. It goes over and every time it's another stupid question. About the moon and about the this and about the that. And why do we this and the apple and the orange. and All types of silly questions. But now you need to know that on a Friday afternoon, Shabbat's about to come in. At the end, after he saw, he's asking him endless amount of questions, and Hillel is excited to answer him. He says, Are you the Hillel that they call Hillel as a kid that never gets angry? He says, I'm Hillel as a kid, yes. He goes, May they never have anyone like you again. Like he curses him. After all these answers that he gave you, and Hillel says, why, my son? What did I do? Maybe I need to do tshuva. Me, I'm still with body language on this guy. Here he's asking him, what did I do? What did I do tshuva? What, what did I do? What did I do that I have to, that, that you say, that may no one ever be like Hillel? He says, because of you, Hillel, I lost 400 zoos because I made a bet that I can make you angry and you don't get angry. He says, ah, my son, it's better that you lose 400 zoos, then Hillel get angry. This Rabotai is patience of the Chachamim. There's another story in the Gemara Maseret Iruvin, page 54b. This story I heard for the first time on Yom Kippur five years ago. 
the story never made sense until you hear it like 10 times and you learn other parts of the Torah. So there was a person by the name of Rabbi Preda. Rabbi Preda was one of the Gdoleado, one of the giants of the generation, and he had a special kapat avonot. He had a special way, a special gift from Shemaim. What? He had one student that had a special level of stupidity. What kind of stupidity? This person could not learn anything unless you told him this 400 times. He had to repeat the same thing 400 times in order for him to understand it. And it's not a student in his yeshiva and he's got 10,000 people and this is just one of them. No, this is what he is teaching himself one-on-one. He says no one else is going to have patience for him. I'm going to teach him. So every day he sits down with them. Okay, Gemara says, Okay, yes. Okay, number two. 400 times the same verse. After 400 times, the student says, Oh, I got it. And then they move on to something else. One day, Rabbi Preda tells them, Listen, son, I have to, today, I have an appointment. So we have to make sure that we study carefully that you get it after the 400 time. No problem, Kodav. They go, they teach. One, two, three, four, five. 400 times. At 400 times, he says, okay, so you got it? No. No. Lamado, what happened every day, Baruch Hashem, after 400 times, Baruch Hashem, you tzaddik gadol, you chacham gadol, Giant Chacham, you got it after 400 times. Welcome today, no. He goes, to be honest with you, Kodarav, the minute you told me that you have to, you're in a hurry today, that we have to make sure to be, I couldn't think the whole time, maybe he's going to go now, maybe he's going to leave now, maybe he has to go, maybe we're not going to get to 400, maybe we're only going to get to 390, maybe he's leaving, maybe somebody's coming. The whole time I'm thinking about something else, I couldn't focus on what you're saying 400 times. Rabbi Preda Rabotai Karim says, you're right, I'm not going. Let's start again. Let's start again 400 times. I cancel my appointment. And they sit down and they learn it again 400 times. After the 400 time, he gets it, leaves, the sky opens. And a butt call comes out to Rabbi Preda. It says, because you broke your own midot, you overcame your own nature, which by default was already amazing, the fact that you're able to teach somebody something 400 times, once in your life, let alone every day. You broke your own nature and overcame even that. We have decided, change everything. Hashem decided that... You have a choice. We're here to give you a message. What's the message? You have a choice. What is it? You can either live 400 years, just like the 400 times you taught extra today, or everyone in your generation gets Olamaba. Rabbi Preda says, let everybody get Olamaba. He said, because you chose for the better of the nation, you're also going to live 400 years.
He's actually one of the people that actually lived 400 years, even in the days of the Gemara. So now, now Rabotai, I ask this question. I mean, the story is great. But I'm asking myself a question. If he's Gdolado, he's giant, he could revive somebody from the dead through his prayers. Is learning every time he learns, it's like Mount Sinai all over again. Why would Hashem waste his time on some imbecile that needs to be taught the same thing 400 times? Let him have a student like Rabbi Akiva. Let him have a student like Rabbi Shemobar Yochai. Why is he bringing a maxil, a fool, that needs to be taught the same thing 400 times? This is what I asked myself for years. He's he's not like a, I, listen, he's not even just come out of school himself. He's in uh, fifth grade, the other guy's in fourth grade. Either way, he's got to learn it. No, this is Gdorador. Imagine, Ravadia. Oh, Ravadia, can you teach me something? Sure. But I need to teach me 400 times. Okay, sure. Every day, 400 times. You're going to learn 400 times. You, after a while, the students start feeling embarrassed. Why would Hashem do such a thing? Why would He take His precious Torah time? And invest it into someone that's considered a ksil, a fool. Why? Anybody have an answer? You're allowed to guess. Azakao Bucha. Rabotai Karim. The reason why is because every time you learn, every time you learn, Gemara, for example, in the beginning of Gemara, it teaches you something critical. You're supposed to say, Yihatsomifanecha <laughs> May be your will, Hashem, my God, that a mishap not come about through me, meaning that I don't make a mistake through my studies. And may I not stumble in a matter of law and cause my colleagues to rejoice over me, meaning that I, I failed and other people make fun of me. Why? Because then they lose their Allah above for making fun of me. And I may not say, Regarding something which is tameh, that it's tall, meaning that I, because through my faulty judgments and my bad learning, I decided something that's tameh is really tall, or that something that's tall is really tameh, something that's pure is impure, or pure that's or impure is pure, meaning I make the opposite, and may my colleagues not stumble in the matter of law, and I rejoice over them, meaning may I never get to such through my studies, and I learn a lot of stuff, but I, instead of becoming a Talmit Chacham that also has good Midot, I start have, becoming arrogant because of my learning. So I see other people fail and I rejoice. Why? Because then I lose Olam by anyway. And then it says a verse, a, uh, a portion in Gemara uh, Maseret Brachot, page 28b, it says, for Hashem grants wisdom. For his mouth come from his mouth come knowledge and understanding of God. Unveil my eyes 
that I may perceive wonders from your Torah. This is actually a verse in Proverbs. So, here is something you say every time you learn Torah. Why did I mention this to you? Is because Proverbs is Shlomo Melech. Shlomo Melech is the wisest man of all time. The wisest man of all time is teaching you that knowledge is not something you're going to get simply by studying. Knowledge of Torah is a gift from God. You could learn the same book a thousand times and still not get it. Another person can learn it a half a time. Half a time and already get the whole thing. Why? Hashem gave him and he didn't give you. This is the only way that I see this in real life and I've told you guys this before. People always ask, how, you know, how long is it, a, uh, you know, the story, that my personal story, what is it, 20 years ago it happened, 10 years ago, I said, what, 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 6 years ago, nothing. I said, what do you mean? So, you did tshuva 5 years ago, you're already teaching for 4 years? How could it be? It doesn't make any sense. Most people don't even know uh, Aleph Bet after a few years. How could it be? Hashem grants knowledge. Hashem grants knowledge. If you think you got the knowledge, you have not. You have no clue about Hashem. You have no nothing. You haven't learned anything. So, a person needs to understand that the reason why Hashem grants knowledge is if you give him a reason. Not because you just open a book. A lot of people open books. I know some people that have been opening books as Avrichim for 20, 25 years. He asked him to give a lecture for an hour. They're like, oh, come on, it's too long. What do you mean? A lecture for one hour only. Oh, it's too long. 15 minutes max. What do you mean? You're learning for 20 years. You can't give a lecture for, 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 for an hour? No. They don't have it. They don't know it. Hashem grants knowledge. Why does He grant knowledge? He grants knowledge when you fix your midot. When you're using that knowledge for a certain reason. There's a purpose for this knowledge. You're going to do Zikri Rabim, you're going to go do Kiru, get people to do Tshuva. He'll grant you endless amount of knowledge. You're going to use the knowledge to go show off as if you're a know-it-all, he'll give you nothing. Nothing. And the knowledge, whatever knowledge he did give you, he'll use against you. So, the whole point, Rabotai, of the story of Rabbi Preda is not that he was spending 400 times on this student is that Rabbi Preda is trying to teach us the only reason he became Rabbi Preda, the only reason he was the Gdolado, was not because of knowledge, but rather because of Midot, because of his amazing character traits, just like Michal said, his amazing amount of patience. You have patience, you can earn the world. You don't have patience, how are you going to get anywhere? And that's also one of the things that we learn already in the same Mishnah, Mishnah which is a person that's a Chacham, doesn't answer impetuously, doesn't uh, you know, uh, break into the other person's conversation, discusses first things first. All of these things have a lot to do with patience. And last but not least, oh actually no, there's two more, it's late. You guys want to continue two more, or you want to just uh, more? Next one it says, This is a deep one. It says about something that he has not heard. He says, I've not heard it. 
Meaning somebody asked you a question. He said, no, I never heard it before. I don't know. Okay. What's the, what, what makes you so hacham? What makes you so wise? You say, somebody asked you a question. Say, I don't know. If anything, from our perspective, say, if he doesn't know, he's not a hacham. He's a ahbal. He's a fool. What is he? What does he know? What does he know? I asked him a question. I asked him to do, and he doesn't know. The fact that he says, I don't know, says he's a hacham. It must be a mistake. No, Abutai. This is the sign of a hacham. Why? The same Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinos in Gemara Masechet Yoma was once asked by his students, Kvod Arav, Can we do such and such? He didn't respond. They waited. They thought maybe he had to think about it. He didn't respond. They asked again. What do you think of such and such? Didn't respond. After a few times of asking with no response, the students questioned again. How come you're not responding? And now he responded. I never ever reply with an answer to something that I don't know. And I'm not sure about where I heard it from. Meaning, if I, it's not about just knowing the answer. It's knowing how did I get this answer? Is this answer my opinion? Or do I actually have a source for this answer that's reliable? If you ask me, what color is the sky? I can tell you it's blue. Who says I'm right? You tell me, how do you know? I said, I saw it this morning. And I saw it the day before. And I've been seeing it for 40 years. It's blue. If it changes, if not, we have a problem. So far, so good. With her, it's blue. I have a source. If you ask me, how do you know a certain thing, a certain thing happened, I tell you, you know what? It sounds good. What you're saying sounds good. Okay, but how do you know it's good? Ah, it just sounds good. You know, it just has that sound. It sounds good. It makes sense. Yeah, but how do you know it makes sense? Maybe it makes sense to you, and it makes sense to me, but in reality, it doesn't make sense to Hashem. It's wrong. How do you know? Rabbi Eliezer ben Holkinos didn't become Rabbi Eliezer ben Holkinos just because he gave answers. He says, if I don't have a source, I don't have an answer. If I don't have a source, I don't have an answer. And that's why when they told him, how come you're not responding? He says, I don't have a source. I don't have an answer. And he says, that's the sign of a chacham. What's a chacham? Someone that has no problem whatsoever saying, I never heard of it. I don't know. I don't know. That's someone that's intellectually honest. That's someone that's providing you information based on knowledge and not based on ego. Sometimes you ask a person a question, they'll have to give you a response, not because they care about the magnitude of the response, but rather because they care about providing you an answer so you think they know. 
Remember the story I told you guys last week? There was a certain accountant that was hired by a company. And the guy hired him, and then one day he asked him some questions. He goes, listen, I was doing some math on some of the things you did, some of the accounting you did. It looks like there's some mistakes. I want to check a few things. Uh, can you do me a favor? Can you just do some math? Sure. What's 150 times 3? 12. No, no, no. 150 times 3. 12. He goes, no, 150 times 12. He goes, no, no, 150 times 3, not 12. He goes, it's 12. He goes, it can't be 150 times 3. 150 is already bigger than 12, than, 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 than the 12. How do you keep saying it? It's the wrong answer. He goes, yeah, but what about the speed? Aren't you impressed by how quickly I answered you? Some people are like this. They just want to give you a fast answer. They forget that the actual answer is more important than the speed. So a person that actually understands the magnitude of the answer that they're going to give you understands that it's much more important to give a right answer or no answer than give a wrong answer. To such an extent that Rabbi Meir Balanes, everyone knows Rabbi Meir Balanes, he was the student of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Meir Balanes told, was a scribe. He would write Torah scrolls. And his son was also a scribe. And he told famously to one of his son, to his son, he told him, my son, you must be very careful when you write the Sefer Torah because a single mistake can destroy the world. Now, mistakes are made all the time. Life, you make mistakes. You make a right on a place you use a one-way one, one street. You make a left. When there's no left, you run into a wall. You eat something not kosher. You eat something this. You make mistakes happen all the time. People usually don't say, listen, if you make this mistake, the world's going to be destroyed unless it's an atomic bomb. Don't press the button because it's an atomic bomb that goes to every single country and we're all going to die. That destroys the world. No one usually uses Sefer Torah as an example. If you make a mistake writing the Sefer Torah, it destroys the world. How is it going to destroy the world? Mistakes happen. When you understand the question, you'll understand the answer. The Sefer Torah is 304,805 letters. Each one of those letters was put together specifically by God for a specific reason. Reasons beyond our comprehension. If one of those letters is not there, the Sefer is pasul. The whole book is not valid. When they write a Sefer Torah in Israel and they want to send it to America, what they usually do is they don't complete it. They usually leave a few, a few words incomplete. So a few short words, you still need to add one or two letters to them. And the reason why is because until the whole scroll is complete, it's not considered a Torah scroll. It's not considered holy. It's not considered anything. So that way they could put that scroll into a luggage and throw it in with the rest of the luggage. Because if it was a Sefer Torah that was complete and someone threw it and it hit the ground, everyone has to fast. It's a big deal. No, obviously. Now, what's the significance of one letter? Abimeir Baranes says to his son, My son, you must be careful because if you make a single letter wrong, you could be destroying the world. How? There are certain words in the Hebrew language 
that if you change one letter not even by making it the wrong letter by simply not having it it changes the magnitude of the sentence it changes the magnitude of the entire Torah to such an extent that it literally destroys the entire Torah so for example the word emit emit means truth so in many places in the Torah it says Hashem emit God truth his signature is emit his signature God's signature is emit truth it doesn't change the law for you because you're not used to it or because you're new or you're old or you're black or you're white or you're green or you're yellow or you're one of the Chinese people or you're one of the Dominican people it doesn't make a difference teacher student makes no difference emet stays emet for everyone now if this word emet that has three letters aleph mem taf you remove one letter and it happens to be the first letter the aleph the small little aleph you remove it what do you have left met what does met mean dead instead of saying god truth you have now said something that you're not even allowed to say the entire Torah is destroyed understand the magnitude so when someone understands the magnitude of certain things he understands that the answer the correct answer is much more important than just providing an answer providing an answer anybody can provide an answer ask a, a donkey oh how will you we will do something ask a donkey I'll make some type of noise I'll give you an answer ask a parrot I'll give you some type of an answer it's gonna be a wrong answer so the sign of a chacham is someone that is able and comfortable of saying lo shamati lo I, I didn't I never heard of it because that shows that he is more concerned about the truth than he is concerned about his ego And the Rambam repeats this again. He says that someone should not talk of something which he doesn't know anything about. And he should not, he should not be ashamed to admit his ignorance in that part. This in so many words, Rabotai, sometimes you talk to people and most of the time people don't know anything. Most of the time people don't know what you're talking about because they didn't learn the same things there's nothing wrong with you not knowing but sometimes people think there is people think that if you don't know that means there's something wrong with you and it doesn't it just means you don't know simple but the problem is that sometimes you'll tell people something and you're trying to teach them something or to enlighten them with something and in the middle of the sentence they're showing their ignorance by saying I know I know I know yeah, yeah I know I know I know why are they showing their ignorance by saying I know because number one they show that they have no manners so obviously they don't know two even if you know how do you know that everything I'm about to tell you you know I haven't completed what I was about to say three they're stopping themselves from ever learning it because they're by saying I know I know I know you're discouraging the speaker from continuing so now, not only are you pretending to know, but now you're guaranteeing you'll never know. Because you keep telling people, I know. And people do this regularly. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Sure, I know, I know. So why'd you ask the question if you know? I know, I know, yeah, yeah, I know. I know. Why'd you ask then? I know, I know, I know, I know. I know. People, I know, I know. People love to say I know. Because they, 
They have, they have self-confidence issues. Last part about this one, the, the uh, Mishbere Yam interprets this as a directive to express appreciation when one is taught something new. If one remains silent after learning a thought or an idea, his intellectual benefactor may get the impression that he already heard it. A truly learned person expresses his appreciation by saying, I never heard this before. Thank you for introducing me to this new idea. Translation to what I just said. Sometimes, somebody's about to tell you a story that you know. You heard the story before. The Gemara story, it's Moshe Rabbeinu's story. You heard the story before. The Mishbere Yam is teaching you both Musar about behavior and also how to really be a Chacham. How? Never ever interrupt the story even if you know the story. Meaning, you heard the story of Kriyat Yam Suf how many times? X amount of times. You heard the story of Moshe Rabbeinu coming from Mount Sinai how many times? X amount of times. There's a mitzvah that we're obligated to do every single year on Pesach coming up in a few weeks. That you are obligated all night to study all night everything that happened from Mitzrayim all the way to Mount Sinai. Even if you are Rav Kanievsky. Even if you are the Gdolado. You're obligated with the same mitzvah as us little people. Why? Go over the story again. But I heard it last year and the year before and the year before and the year before. Go over it, go over it again. Number one, you can understand something new from the same story all the time. Because Torah, it never ends. That's number one. Number two, if someone teaches you this specific thing, if someone is about to tell you a story and you interrupt and saying, I, I heard it, you could be ruining something for them. You could be ruining something for them. Number one, maybe they wanted to try something out by teaching somebody and you just stole that opportunity for them. Now this guy that was about to teach you something, all he needed was one student to say, wow, what a story, and he was going to become he was going to start teaching people every week and he was actually going to succeed and get people to do tshuva every week and every week people do tshuva, people go to Hashem people do this, do this, but you ruined it why? you thought, oh yeah, I heard it already I heard the story about Moshe Rabbeinu I heard, I heard, I heard already destroyed his confidence he now wants to go back to be an engineer now he wants to go back and go cut hair again he doesn't want to be a teacher anymore why? you said I heard it the magnitude of you saying I know you just destroyed millions of lives potentially. Two, second reason. Many times, if you're a speaker, you actually learn while you speak. If you speak out loud, you're learning. You actually end up learning from your own speech, from you saying it yourself. Why? When you read, if you're reading it in a secular way, you read anything in a secular way, all you're doing is reading with your eyes. When you read in a religious way, you read like a Ben Torah, like a Jew, you're reading with both your eyes and with your lips, meaning you're saying the words out loud. You don't necessarily need to say, hey, Baruch, Atah, Hashem, like you know, some people that never do a blessing the whole year, but one time you do a blessing, but they want to make sure the whole synagogue heard. The guy hasn't done a blessing since 1942. 
But he comes to the Mekneset, Baruch Atash, okay, guy, I get you. It's only an apple. Relax. Relax. It's only an apple. We got you. It's an apple. You know the blessing. It's good for you. Not everybody has to hear Baruch Atash. Okay, fine. You do every blessing like that? If you do, you should be Moshe Rabbeinu. But it's off at Dawin for the, for the, for the uh, show-off. So anyway, sometimes you learn simply by hearing yourself. Because now, instead of just your eyes, instead of your eyes and your lips, now you're also using your ears. Because when you speak, you speak out loud and you're, you're repeating something, you're sharpening your own skills. And you're also now seeing other people's reaction. And a lot of things happen, and now since you've repeated it out loud, all the thoughts that you had before get rewinded, and now you start getting new thoughts. And you start getting a chidush from your own speech. From your own, I can tell you many times, during the shiur itself, I got a chidush. Many times. Literally, I think it's at least once a week. If not every week, every, every shiur. Always a chidush during a shiur. That's just the way it works. So now, if somebody's about to give you a chidush or some story that you heard a thousand times already, and you say, no, 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 I know already, and you cut their story up in half, tell them, no, no, I know, I know, you could have potentially just killed their chidush. Then now they're not going to get a chidush because of you. So the character trait that we all have to develop is to have enough patience to let people finish what they're going to say, even if you heard it. Especially if it's Torah. Especially if it's Torah. If it's Shtuyod, if it's the guy is telling you the same story about how he got into an accident in his car and, you know, and, and, and there was a fender bender and the guy came from the left and then from the right and then the light and the blue and the red and all he tells you a poker hand, people that play poker, they love to tell you the story about every single hand they ever played. Oh, and he had aces and he had queens, and then I, I, I said yes, and I called them. And they, they tell you that every single hand they ever played, or people that go fishing. People that go fishing, and they tell you, oh, listen, that day the sky was blue, the clouds were on the right side, the sun was shining on me, but I think it was really on him. And the fish, I'm telling you, those fish were talking to me. They were talking, I was going to get one that day. And I'll tell you the whole story about the fish, and the whole fishing story. And I, it's, a, it's a famous thing. People that fish, people that play poker, People that, in general, do certain things, they like to repeat the stories. It's like they've lived vicariously through their own stories. That, you don't have to listen to again. If you have the time and you have the ability and you want to develop really, really good manners and it's somebody that's important, like your father, your mom, you have to. That's something else. But if it's just some guy that's just wasting your time, you have no obligation to listen to it. Just somebody that's a random person that's just wasting your time, wants to tell you poker stories or fishing stories, you have no obligation to listen to it. But if it's Torah... You have to listen to it. Number one, you can help him. Number two, you can help yourself. Number three, you could potentially, there's part of the story you never heard. Even though you heard the whole story a million times, there's maybe he's going to mention one fact that you never heard that's going to complete the story for you. So this Abutai is this next part. We only have two more parts left, which is admits the truth. And the opposite of all of this, Bagolem. Meaning, someone who admits the truth. That by itself is a shiur, I think. The magnitude of what it means to admit the truth. And two, what does it mean if we don't have any of these? Being a golem. 
being an incomplete person. Is that something we should worry about? Is that something we're not? So, Bezat Hashem, I'll leave that for tomorrow night. We have a shiur also uh, down the street from here, Bezat Hashem, uh, at Naomi's house. So, anyone that wants to come to the shiur, you have to RSVP, so they let you in through the gate. Uh, people that try to come without RSVPing usually were not let in. It's a big problem, and it's just a big waste of time. So, you have to RSVP. Um, last but not least, there is something significant about Mashiach that I've been wanting to tell you guys, uh, but it just didn't happen today, so maybe it'll be tomorrow. There's some new developments, uh, kind of scary, but nonetheless necessary. So maybe tomorrow will be the day, maybe next week, I'm not really sure. We'll see how Hashem decides it. But I think for tonight we should be aware enough. We're already here for a couple of hours, or almost three hours. Unless you have pressing questions that have to do with the shiur, I'll let you guys go to sleep and let the crowd go to sleep too. Anybody? Questions? Anything? Amen.